is a disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee. Hello. And our special co-co-host, Norm. Ahoy. Many people have been referring you to you as Nuclear Norm, so I think Nuclear Norm's going to stick. Uh, we're, we're stuck with it. <laughs> yep, Many we, people, meaning you and me, people I guess. online. No, no, oh, no, no. Cool. No, people are like, hey, it's I love Nuclear Norm. Hold on. You, you sure it's this Norm? Okay, cool, 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 <laughs> cool, whatever. <laughs> I don't know of any other Nuclear Norm. So norms. you're joining us for part two of our Chernobyl series, the second and final installment. Uh, we kind of backloaded this one. <laughs> The first episode was already pretty long. It was yeah. a lot of background. Turns out Chernobyl's a big topic. But uh, I'm just going to do some housekeeping up front like I always do. Best thing you can do to help us out if you like what you hear is to tell a friend to listen. That's that's number one. You can also subscribe if you aren't already and leave us a review. You can check out our social medias at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. All on one breath. Nice one. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just dive right in. So most of what I'm talking about today, my main source was this book by Adam Higginbotham called Midnight in Chernobyl. Mm. It's a great book. Uh, there is so much detail and I feel like there's going to be a long episode, but it's still going to have to glaze over a lot out of necessity. Sure. Because it turns out one of the greatest disasters that humans have ever caused has a lot of detail to it. So if you want to get the full experience, read Midnight in Chernobyl. It's Gotta fantastic. Book. And I also supplemented it with articles and news clippings and just everything. Yep. So you read a book. I read the uh, International Nuclear like Debrief Report. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think combined, we're like, I actually haven't seen this episode of It's Always Sunny. We're, we've got that wall with like the the yarn and the pictures and like <laughs> yeah. trying to figure everything out and charlie day freaking out oh yeah 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 <clears throat> right so um i watched the show okay that was my me too <laughs> my well, contribution I, so the show is actually broad strokes if you just watch the show you'll get the gist but there's a lot of liberties exactly there. Not, this isn't going to be like a side-by-side -side comparison with the show oh hell no but there's a couple places where we'll mention it and, yeah. clearly you'll get a lot more from yeah this. Yeah, just just yeah. don't watch the show. Don't watch it. Yeah, yeah skip don't, the show. Just, Until after this. Yeah. So can you remind us where we left off? Yes, yeah, I was going to do a quick <laughs> recap. Thank you. Uh, we left off nowhere near Chernobyl. Right. <laughs> Last episode, uh, I mean, I, I, I say this a lot of times at the beginning. I didn't say it this time. If you want to be fully in the know, we don't do a lot of inside jokes, but we do callbacks to previous episodes, especially in an episode like this that has a part one. So I would go back and listen to Chernobyl part one, where we talk mostly about nuclear physics, a lot of the background science, and we talked about the atomic age after the uh, Second World War when they dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Talked a little bit about the Cold War, and we ended up in 1966 when the Soviets basically started their massive push to nuclearize all their energy, essentially. Right. And that's kind of where we're going to dive in today. One of many races with the the U.S. of A. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And we'll we'll see how that <clears throat> went. Yeah. It went super well. It went super smooth, I think. Well, yeah. if, if you're listening Best to this friends. in the present yeah. and not the past, I think you know how it went. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you listening to it on some like beat up iPod in a yeah. burning bunker or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so current state. Let's start by talking about radiation in Sweden. April 28th, 1986. Cliff Robertson walked back from the washroom after his breakfast, just like any of a hundred other times he'd done it. Today, Robinson set off an alarm. So he walked past the detector three times just to make sure that it wasn't a fluke. Uh -huh. like he just kept walking by this radiation detector and it kept setting it off. And eventually, like on the third try, it didn't go off. So it was like, oh, that, was, that was weird. <laughs> so he went. So it's not me. Yeah, it's not me. I guess <laughs> it's just the machine. So he went, went about the rest of his day fulfilling his duties, which were to monitor radioactivity in the Forsmark nuclear power plant in Sweden, where he worked. Okay. Which is why they had a radiation detector. Kind of makes sense. Good I don't call. have one at work. 
Do you have one? Probably somewhere, but yeah. not okay. in my area. It's not a daily thing that you get scanned for radiation. Not, but yeah. I do receive <laughs> nuclear medicine. That's cool. With the radioactive sign on it. Nice. And we have procedures. That's pretty metal. So, you know, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hit a big timer yep. on the wall. Counts down an hour. Oh, yeah. For the guy to deliver it. Yep. Or we die. Really? No. Oh, but something <laughs> happens. Damn. It's just not good. Let's just say anyway. that you would die. Yeah. That's the cooler option. Exactly. Continue. Okay. So as Robinson left the facility, he was held up in a huge line behind the radiation detector that he had just set off earlier in the day. Huh. It was basically a group of pissed off nuclear power plant operators just trying to get home. And they couldn't get past because everyone kept setting off this alarm. So Robinson couldn't figure out what was going on. So he grabbed a shoe from one of the people that were in the line and took it back to his lab to test it because his <laughs> job was to test for radioactivity. <laughs> so he used a germanium detector, which I guess it looks for ionizing radiation. Norm? Sure. Okay. Norm's our resident <laughs> expert. That passes must. I got I got it right. So the shoe registered off the charts for radioactive elements that aren't even present in the cooling water at Force Mark. Oh, okay. So obviously the initial concern is if everybody's setting it off, there must be a radiation leak in our plant. Uh-huh. But he tested it for all these elements and none of them were present in their plant. Oh. So Robinson's first thought is that somebody set off a bomb. And that this was World War III, essentially. Okay. Because what else could it possibly be? <laughs> but he didn't have much time to think because just as he was doing these tests, alarm went off and they evacuated the plant. He stayed behind to keep running tests because he was just baffled by what the source of this radiation right. could be. He already knew more than most. Right. He was just running these tests. He was sure. Like, I, he just couldn't Killing figure out where it was coming from. Yeah. And he would stay in the dark for a while, but he'd get answers eventually. Yeah. That was April 28th, 1986. Oh, okay. I'm a flashback a little bit, and we'll come back to Robinson. <laughs> okay. So on February 20th, 1970, after running down a list of potential names, the leader of the Ukrainian Communist Party christened what the USSR hoped would be the pinnacle of nuclear power generation, and they named it after the capital of the region where it would be built, Chernobyl. So the USSR, they were, they were strong starters, but they weren't really strong closers. Okay. So for example, they beat their capitalist counterparts in the US by building the first nuclear power plant to generate commercial electricity in 1954. Uh -huh. And if you remember from our last episode, part one, US built Chicago Pile One in 1942. Okay. But they wouldn't, the US wouldn't build anything that could power anything more than a Christmas light until <laughs> they built the shipping port atomic power station in 1958. Uh, so the Soviets beat them by four years. Bit late, and first is best. Yeah, we know that. Well, if you remember, I've, I've, I've got some, I've got some I've got some numbers actually. So we'll, <laughs> we'll yeah. So to be fair, at the time the U.S. was kind of more concerned with uncontrolled nuclear fission. You remember, <laughs> they were trying to trying to end a world war. Yeah. So yeah. the yeah Soviets were they had maybe had they had a leg up a little bit. Maybe incidentally. The Soviets beat the U.S. to space twice as well, if you remember, from our Apollo 1 episode. Yeah. 1957, they launched Sputnik, which was the first artificial satellite. That's right. 1961, Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space. And uh -huh. the Americans just changed the goalposts. Yeah. And they say, it's actually the moon. The moon and then no. now it's, oh, it's actually the first reactor that doesn't melt down. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like we win again. Always changing the rules, I guess. That second one should be unspoken. But. <laughs> <laughs> well... The first one that works. So even though the Soviets built the first commercial reactor in 54, by the 1970s, the USSR was scrambling to catch up to growing electricity demand and falling behind the US okay. when it came to their nuclear program. Mm. So by the end of the 1960s, the USSR tasked the Ministry of Energy and Electrification, obviously. <laughs> it's 1984, right? Yes. Nice. They've got ministries and <laughs> fucking supervisors. So, they tasked, so they, they tasked the Ministry of Energy and Electrification under the supervision of Viktor Burhanov with building an ambitious series of nuclear reactors. The plan was to basically build a series of reactors that would span all along the European Soviet Union from the Gulf of Finland to the Caspian Sea. 
Okay. Which is kind of telling right off the bat because they're building it along the edge of the, of the t- Russian territory. <laughs> yeah. We shall build the grandest series of yeah. nuclear reactors the world has ever seen. <laughs> Over there. Away from as close here. to Belarus <laughs> as possible. Yeah. Far away from anywhere that we live. As far so, as <laughs> legally possible. Yeah. <laughs> we would build them in territory that's not ours, but yeah. we don't have the permits. So. Yeah. <laughs> Someday, though. It's important to know at this point that the Ministry of Energy and Electrification had zero experience building nuclear power plants, oh, good. nuclear reactors. Well, I guess no one does at this point. Any reactor until now was built by the Ministry of Medium Machine Building, which Medium. is actually a code name for the secret organization that built the nuclear weapons for the Soviets. Oh. The Ministry of Medium <laughs> Machine Building. It's Are you saying media or medium? Medium. medium. Like not big, not small. Medium yeah, size medium. machine <laughs> building. Okay. Yeah. Ministry of medium machine That's building. It's not very Soviet of them. It's not, <laughs> but also there is some, there, there's precedent for that too, because for example, I think, I think about the British special forces during the second world war to disguise their commando operations. The British established this organization and called it the special air service to no, make it sound like it's like mail delivery. <laughs> super army. <laughs> Super army soldiers. From extras. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but they, they called it, uh, it's the special air service. It's right. still called the special air service because it sounds like they, it was the gu- under the guise of the people that delivered mail. Yeah. But it was like. Sounds like bloody postman. Elite. <laughs> it, yeah, it's supposed to. Right. Elite they commandos. Would, yeah, they would. Calling it the Ministry of <clears throat> Media Machine Building. What do you do? Nothing. Don't worry about it. Nothing. Nuclear weapons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the title says it all boring. <laughs> don't ask. Don't worry about it. So Burhanov traveled to Chernobyl and started making a list of materials and calculating costs with pencil, paper, and a slide rule. <laughs> Which, I mean, to be fair, NASA got to the moon with slide rules. Sure. But still, starting off with one dude sitting on a bed, making <laughs> notes on a piece of paper like a grocery with list. With his tongue out and his legs right? in the air. Like, I guess I'm going to need some cement. <laughs> uh, what, else? what else do I need? Uranium, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Shitload of mermanium. But this is, that's how engineering was done in the 50s. Sure. <laughs> it's, it's done like you're a first year student without a calculator. Right, yeah. I guess they didn't have laptops and stuff. But it's still like knowing how this ends up, it's not good optics when you start off with a dude who's like, Okay, how do you build a nuclear power plant? (laughs) (laughs) Crayons. Crayons, basically. But still, he got shit done. So he hired construction workers and machinery, and he started clearing a path in the woods to the north of Chernobyl and leveling a plateau where the plant would eventually be built. Okay. And I think maybe that's just like an outsider looking in. Every construction project starts somewhere, which is the fact that it's like a dude. uh, I guess I need... Bulldozers? Yeah. Started. Clear path about yay big. How big's a reactor? (laughs) How big you want it? I'm painting like a moron. He was he was trained. He knew what he was doing. It's probably pretty bright. But it's just had to do a lot with very little. As someone who wouldn't know where to start (laughs) building a reactor, he's picturing me doing it. (laughs) So they also built a settlement nearby for himself and the workers to live in while they built the plant. Okay. At the same time as the plant was being built, they began construction on an atomgrad. It means atomic city in Russian, near the river by the site of the plant. Okay. So right nearby, about three kilometers away from where the plant would be. And this would actually be called eventually Pripyat. Right. And it would house thousands of staff and families that came to work at the plant. Okay. Almost like a military base. Kind of military base, but it's like a city. Like they basically city three kilometers away. There was like like a buffer zone, which everyone totally rigidly adhered to. And nobody built summer homes in the woods or anything. (laughs) Oh, really? Uh huh. So construction on Pripyat was completed in 1972. It was thrown up so fast that they didn't have proper roads or heating at first. They basically just built these shells of buildings so that people could (laughs) physically be in them. them. Yeah. Yeah. But that's about it. So they basically lived in cold flats and dealt 
built with dirt roads okay. for most of the construction of Chernobyl. So morale was sky high. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, early on, it kind of was because a lot of people sure. that came to work on Chernobyl were, you know, graduates from these nuclear institutes that were enthusiastic about the project. Oh, and yeah. They wanted to get a lot of manual experience working on nuclear power plants because oh, yeah. it's such a new industry. They're at the forefront of yeah. this new energy yeah. source. But we'll see. Part of it is that group of enthusiastic people <laughs> that are well-trained goes away at a certain point. And wow. it's replaced by <laughs> what you picture if I if I say the word Soviet worker. <laughs> but we'll get we'll we'll get we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> nice. And we will get there. Stock and trade. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, there was a sanitary zone where people couldn't live, but they totally did live right. in the woods. Naughty naughty. And the plan was to build massive reactors. And before we get into the details on how they constructed these reactors, I thought we should turn to nuclear norm to hear about how reactors generally work. Uh-oh. Good thing he's here. Yeah, good thing. Norm, you want to take it away? Take it away. Certainly. We briefly discussed reactors in kind of a very surface level quality in the previous two episodes. Right. But we'll go into a little bit more detail now just because it helps understand what happened. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick one-line summary of what, what we've learned pre in the last two <laughs> yeah. three hours of podcasding. Oh, that's yeah. good. You can sum the last three hours up in a sentence. <laughs> in one I'm line. so glad we spent an hour and 20 minutes <laughs> yeah. last time. So if you recall, the fuel that they use for these reactors is uranium-235. Yes. And that's the less common isotope of uranium. Most natural uranium is uranium-238. Okay. So you need to enrich it with centrifuges to get the 235 concentration up to about 3%. Okay. And then that can be used in a reactor. Okay. Then when you have your fuel in your reactor, you can hit the uranium-235 with neutrons. It splits into smaller atoms. It mm -hmm. releases energy and neutrons. The neutrons can then go on to create a chain reaction that boils water and spins a turbine. Sweet. That sounds simple. Easy I get it. Yeah. Let's, let's build it. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. So the chain reaction actually doesn't just occur easily. Oh. Otherwise, it would be really easy to make a nuclear reactor. Oh, There's always a catch. Oh, it's complicated. Yes. It, yes. It, it oh. is not as easy as it sounds. You made it sound. Like yeah. Nothing. Yeah. You just. Yeah. <laughs> you don't just hit hit them with neutrons, Damn. unfortunately. Okay. So when the uranium-235 fissions and it releases its neutrons, the neutrons are what we call fast neutrons, which are very high energy. Okay. And basically for quantum mechanical reasons, a fast neutron actually isn't very likely to trigger another fission. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's extremely unlikely, in fact. You, you, said, you said quantum, which probably means that that's way beyond the scope. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Uh, too fast. Gotcha. Yeah, and this explains why the fuel doesn't just blow up on its own. That yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I guess that's a question because I didn't have, but just had. Because it's not it. triggering other fissions yeah. without some human intervention. Gotcha. Okay. So to increase the probability of the fission, yeah. you actually need to slow down those neutrons that are released. Okay. Uh, you need to slow down their speed by almost a million times. Oh wow. Huh. And if you recall from the two episodes ago, the thing that slows down neutrons is water. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. right. So. That's what they end up using. Yeah, nice. So the thing that slows anything that slows down neutrons is called a moderator. Okay. And it's kind of counterintuitive because it's it's slowing them down, but the moderator is actually increasing the chance of reactions. Okay. As okay. opposed to moderating it. It's so, moderating the neutrons, which makes it more likely to slow neutrons, in. increasing reactivity. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So water is considered to be a moderator. Okay. They would just use one of those like spray, like, psh, psh, <laughs> scare the cat with. <laughs> Time to yep. spray the neutrons again. It, it, yeah. It's so we can we'll look <laughs> That's into why I'm here. That's what I bring to the table. <laughs> Perfect. Go yeah. on. Yeah. So water is a water moderator yep. uh, and just regular old water. 
yep. is yep. commonly used because uh, okay. it's very, very abundant. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, there's one issue with water in that it actually absorbs neutrons on its own. So some okay. it'll slow them down, but sometimes it'll absorb some. Okay. Hmm. So that means it's not a perfect moderator. It's actually kind of not efficient in terms of getting as many neutrons out as possible. I see. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, so it's not really super great, but obviously it's cheap and easy to get. Sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, another good moderator is graphite. Okay. Okay. Graphite is crystallized carbon mm -hmm. uh, in sheets. It's the stuff that's in your pencils. Right. 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 And it's really good because it doesn't absorb neutrons. Okay. okay. So it'll slow down the, the neutrons without absorbing them. Oh, I see. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And it's a solid. So that means you can place it exactly where you <laughs> want it to be. Right. Yeah. You can manipulate it and it's very thermally stable. Perfect. So after a few high-profile accidents with graphite-moderated reactors <laughs> uh -huh. in, in the early 50s and 60s, also non-commercial style reactors, yeah, like uh, research reactors, yeah. all the designs for civilian reactors eventually switched to water-moderated, okay. Okay. except in the USSR. Oh. oh. Sticking with graphite. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Well. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, so the, the little more detail on the reactor core. Okay. So this is the main thing where all the, the good stuff happens. Yep. Okay. Your core has a bunch of fuel assemblies bundled, and they're placed in an array. Yep. And then you're surrounded by your moderator. Okay. So if your moderator is water, you just have a bunch of fuel rods surrounded by water. Right. Okay. And so if you think of like an analogy like a car, yep. the moderator increases reactions. Yeah. Uh -huh. So your moderator is your accelerator. So okay. the more moderator that you have, the more you're accelerating your your engine. Okay. Right. The equivalent analogy for the brakes of yeah. this are control rods. Okay. Right. So control rods are made of materials that absorb neutrons. This could be boron or cadmium, things okay. like that. Right. And they're removable, and they can be inserted into the core to absorb neutrons and control the rate at which fission happens. Oh, right. okay. Right. You have an accelerator and a brake, and that's how you balance the, the reaction rate. So gotcha. if you want it to react faster, more power, you pull out control rods, slower you put them in. Okay. okay. Like that actually is fairly simple. Again, why aren't they everywhere? Anyone can do this. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the fuel, as we mentioned in the... Three Mile Island episode. Yep. Yeah. Constantly needs to be cooled because it's always generating heat. Right. Right. So you need some sort of coolant. Yeah. Now, if the fuel gets too hot, it will melt itself, which mm -hmm. is the meltdown. Right. Bad news. Don't mm -hmm. want meltdowns. Yeah, don't want no. meltdowns. Do you want critical? Don't want meltdowns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every currently running nuclear reactor uses water as a coolant. Okay. okay. Because water is abundant, cheap, and easy to use. Seems the smart way to go. Yeah. That seems like the way to go. Yep. So you, you notice that water is both a moderator and a coolant. Aha. Uh -huh. Right. Multi-purpose. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And that actually makes it very safe in a way. Okay. So right. for all our our Western designed reactors where you just have a big pot of water with a bunch of fuel in it, mm -hmm. uh, where the water is both your coolant and your moderator, yep. it results in this effect called a negative void coefficient. Okay. Which Whoa. is, <laughs> sounds fancy. <laughs> yeah. It is essentially a negative feedback loop. Okay. If the core heats up and the water starts to boil away, the water is also your moderator. So if your water coolant boils away, yeah. you have less of your moderator. Yeah. Right. So which you have screwed. less reactions. Yeah and it slows down. Okay, I see. So if the heat, basically if the fuel gets hot, it slows itself down. Okay. Mm. And that's the okay. negative feedback. Gotcha. Okay. So it's less reactive. It's a damper on having a runaway bomb, essentially, right. if your heat gets, if your reactor gets too hot. Right. Okay. And that's why you use water as your coolant and your moderator. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Because yeah. the worst thing that could happen it's is like you lose switch. some water and it slows down. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And essentially the, the issues with all historical uh, nuclear disasters yep. were loss of coolant right, problems. Right. Yeah. And like, so they could have been worse, but the coolant doesn't, it doesn't explode, doesn't get more reactive. Right. It, other bad mm. stuff happens, but yeah. it doesn't turn into a bomb. Right, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. 
What about a graphite moderated? What about a graphite <laughs> moderated reactor? Let's reactor. go that way. Yeah. So you will you surround your fuel with graphite instead of water. Yep. Okay. But you still need to cool it with water, so there's still enough room for some water to come in and, and keep it cool. But most of the reactor is graphite. Okay. Okay. Uh, and the moderation is handled by the graphite. The water basically is just there to cool. Just to cool. But yeah. remember, water also absorbs neutrons. Yeah. Yes. So water in this design is kind of like a crappy control rod. Like oh. it's a weak control rod. Okay. Right. Graphite moderated reactors like this result in a positive void coefficient. Okay. Mm. So when they get hotter yeah. and you yeah. boil the water away, yeah. you're boiling away something that is absorbing neutrons. Right. Right. So it becomes more so reactive when it gets hotter. Overload. Right. Okay. And then that's really, really bad. <laughs> so the control rods are the ones that are slowing down the neutrons. No, right? no, no. So water. The moderator is slowing down the neutrons. The yeah. control rods are absorbing the neutrons. Right. Gotcha. Okay. But water They're specifically is the absorbing yeah. the neutrons. Water also absorbs neutrons. Some neutrons. Okay. Yeah, so it's it slows, a bit of a control yeah, in that exactly. sense. Exactly. It is okay. a very weak control to okay. the uh, to the absorption of neutrons. Okay. Got it. Fair enough. So if your water goes away because you lose control of your reactor and then yeah. all the water boils away and yeah. you have no water there. You have nothing absorbing neutrons right. and then it reactions increases. Oh, okay. Yeah, it just And you have a spikes. runaway. You don't want that. Runaway train. Yeah. So obviously, obviously <laughs> nuclear scientists and engineers are like, yeah. oh, well, we can't have that. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> That's so, a real dumb yeah. way to build a reactor. Yeah, we'll yeah. never Who license. Would do that? Yeah. No one would ever license a design yeah. like, like that. Who would do that? However, in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this was never licensed to operate, obviously, outside of the USSR. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Way to make your own rules, guys. Yeah. Uh, there is a very useful safety mechanism. We briefly hinted at it or mentioned it in the previous episode. Right. The safety control rod activation mechanism. That's yep. your scram button. Right. And scram. all reactors had this, even the Soviet ones. That's, well, good. So yeah. they had an off button. Yeah. So they, knew, they knew to put it in an off button. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. It, <laughs> it's the emergency, the it's the emergency button that you hit that inserts all the control rods. So that's right. all the neutron absorbers. Right. And it terminates the, the fission right, right away. Right, so right, what could right. possibly go wrong with such an efficient system? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you can consider it your emergency brake for your car. Okay. Okay. Now, side fun story about SCRAM. It currently stands for the Safety Control Rod Activation Mechanism. But historically, and, it's, and somewhat facetiously, <laughs> it was an acronym for Safety Control Rod Axeman. The new one's better. <laughs> yeah. Although that is kind of lost yeah. me at Axe, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Norman Hilberry was an American physicist. He was the director of Argonne National Labs in okay. 1956 to 61. Yep. Accomplished physicist himself. Yep. In 1942, he actually worked on Chicago Pile 1. Hey. Which oh, was okay. the Manhattan Project's first Experience. nuclear reactor. I like to call it CP1. CP1? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is what they oh, call it. Bro. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh, and during the first operation of, of Chicago Pile 1, uh, Hilberry stood with a fireman axe mm -hmm. next to a rope okay. that suspended a bunch of control rods that dangled <laughs> over the core. Okay. And in the event that the okay. reactor went unstable, he would chop the rope and drop all the, the rods <laughs> okay. into the reactor. I get the axe man now. It's yeah. pretty cool. It's making more sense. It's cool. It's I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were multiple safety mechanisms of people waiting in position like that. <laughs> right. But his is the only one that has this legacy of being having the emergency button named after him. Oh, <laughs> what do you do at the nuclear power plant? I'm axe man. I, I never I sleep. Wait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So that's basically how reactors work. Okay. In the 1950s, there were basically two branches of reactors being developed okay. that use different physics. Right. Okay. One branch is the thermal reactors, yep. and that is 
everything we've been talking about for the last three episodes. Okay. okay. Everything we've been talking about is a thermal reactor. Okay. They uh, use neutron moderators with water as their coolant. Right. Every reactor that's in existence today that is commercial uses is a thermal reactor, okay. including pressurized water reactors, which are thermal reactors, okay. such as in Three Mile Island. Right. And then there's the second most common type of reactor, which is a boiling water reactor, which is what they used in Chernobyl. But okay. it is not necessarily, like their design is completely different than right. the boiling water reactors that were used in Fukushima, for example. Uh, way better in every way, is what you mean. Um, no. Superior. Mm. <laughs> no? 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 Okay. So, so thermal <laughs> reactors are cheap, cheaper to build. They're relatively inefficient because you okay. use this uranium-235, which is like 3% of the fuel, yeah. and mm -hmm. then you throw out the rest of the fuel, oh. and then that's waste, nuclear waste that you right. live to hide ocean. away, flush yeah, down yeah, the yeah. toilet. Right, yeah. So, so th but those are the thermal reactors. Okay. The other branch that they researched at the same time, and they were doing all this stuff, is mm -hmm. called the fast reactor. Okay. They used fast neutrons, okay. which is shocking. Yeah, right. Uh, and this was actually at the time considered to be real nuclear power. Okay. okay. It's a little more complex than thermal reactors mm -hmm. and they need even higher levels of enrichment of uranium-235 to run. Okay. Because mm -hmm. uh, they, they don't use a moderator because right. they use fast reactors. Sure. So they need like 20% enriched uranium compared to like 3% right. from the, the other ones. So like, Jeez. why would you use these? No, exactly. Well, the fast reactors have the benefit in that they can transmute uranium-238, yeah. which is the unused portion of the fuel, into plutonium-239. Okay which is a fuel even better than uranium-235. Oh, sweet. Wow. Just do that one. So the fast reactors are called breeder reactors because they make more fuel yeah. out of the fuel that you're not using than you use in fuel. That's <laughs> pretty sweet. Yeah. It certainly served the DeLorean. It sure did. <laughs> plutonium. <fuel>. Yep. <laughs> Suckers yeah. nuclear. How did he replace it with the recycling thing? <sighs> the future. Like, how do you go from plutonium to banana peel? Right? Uh, <laughs> fusion. It's in, in the future. Fusion on. It's like potassium is radioactive, so is plutonium. It's the same thing. Fission, where we're going, we don't need fission. <laughs> yeah, so that's just a little sidebar that there were these two fields yeah. of research going down parallel to each other. Interesting. Uh, but in, in the 50s, the, the light water reactors were obviously chosen because that's what we have now. But they were mainly chosen because they were chosen by the U.S. Navy to power their nuclear submarines right. initially. Okay. Yeah. And there was actually fear that the Soviets would be selling their reactors since they got their reactor at first. Right. They, they'd sell them before America would, their designs. Oh, okay. So Eisenhower really pushed for the commercialization of the light water reactors right away. Oh, I see. Okay. As opposed yeah. to the more complex ones like that would take for, longer. Yeah, 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 the fast reactors. Okay, that makes sense. There's a good uh, buck in that rack. Yeah. There is indeed. And like it kind of turned out that wasting uranium wasn't really a big deal because Turns out there's a lot of uranium. Okay. okay. Uh, so that was less of a concern. And all the momentum was behind these light water reactors. So right. they became the dominant okay. technology in both Russia and the West. Okay. But the fast reactor technology was heavily researched in the 60s through the 90s. And that knowledge exists okay. now. Yeah. And it's ready to go. So you okay. can just build fast, fast reactors. Yeah, but it, we know exactly how to do it. But no one's ever built one because right. the ones we have now are fine. Thanks, Norm. So the plan was... That was so insincere. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Norm. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. <sighs> yeah, it was awesome, Norm. There's no way I can do this. I'm just going to jump it's in. It's going to get worse yeah. and worse. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> so the plan, coming back to Chernobyl now, yes. was to build two massive reactors to start. And they were these stupid big reactor Bolshoi Moshnosti Kanoni, or high-powered channel type reactor. Good pronunciation. That's Well, I'm Czech, so it's close. <laughs> Whatever. But anyway, if goods. you took those letters, it spells out RBMK. 
And that's the kind of reactor that they were going to build. Okay. And I think we're going to loop around mm-hmm. and talk about them in a little bit more detail. But basically, I'll give you the basics. Okay. They could generate 1,000 megawatts of electricity, which is enough, about enough power for a million homes. Wow. So they wanted to build two of these right off the bat. Sure. So Moscow goes to Bruhanov. Hey, you can build this unprecedented, gigantic behemoth reactor in five years, right? <laughs> and Bruhanov's like, no. So <clears throat> Moscow's like, perfect. Build the second one by 1979. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah. If there was ever a Soviet economic boom, yeah. it was ending and rolling back downhill by the 1970s. <laughs> oh. So there was no money and no materials to build these giant, unprecedented, stupid big reactors. Right. So they were either production bottlenecks or more likely there was embezzlement by government officials at all levels. Like there's just no materials, no money, <laughs> no anything. You mm. couldn't rely on anything. Don't forget the Soviet mentality, and I'm going to talk about this again in a little bit. <laughs> All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So essentially, you've got, you know, this Very communist ideal, but some people are profiting off of it. <laughs> sure. And some people are getting screwed hard. Hmm. But maybe you don't want to screw your nuclear industry when it's building giant well, power plants. Yeah. So without exaggeration, construction was a dumpster fire from day one. <laughs> Burhanov was short on construction equipment. When things did show up, which they often didn't, they were either the wrong part, inadequate, or defective. <laughs> And it got so bad that actually throughout the energy construction industry in the Soviet Union, they incorporated a stage of construction called pre-installation overhaul. So this is basically, they would order these this parts that they needed to build these reactors. And yeah. the first thing, anytime a piece of equipment sh- would show up, like turbines, transformers, the first thing that they did was completely strip them down and reassemble them to the original specification. Because so, they knew it was... Because the factory just like, they know they fucked <laughs> cut it. Cut corners to the point. Cut it was corners. Sphere. Yeah. Like you'd basically, yeah, like things would show up and they knew that it was <laughs> not going to work. <laughs> That's so amazing. Step one, step one on this construction project that has a super tight deadline for this unprecedented giant <laughs> reactor was rebuild everything that comes on site, <laughs> right? Which, you know, I and we say, when I say like rebuild and make sure it's built properly, I say as much as they can. Yeah. At the same time, you've got your boss telling you like, done yet? TikTok. Is it done yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even on the reconstruction, corners are getting cut. And oh, they, wow. they forgot some of the screws when they, they put it basically. <laughs> they put it together that, and they got like, yeah. 15 leftover screws yeah, here. Is that Your bad? Ikea furniture again. Yeah. Yeah. Not important. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No problem. As if factories shit in the bed on the equipment wasn't bad enough. <laughs> Burhanov dealt with food shortages at the construction site for uh-huh. all the laborers and anyone doing any kind of work. Labor disputes constantly, unsurprisingly. Why? Just kidding. <laughs> right? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Monthly work quotas were routinely missed and work quotas are a thing in the Soviet Union that I'll talk about. Okay. And then in Pripyat, and that's just like on the construction site, and in Pripyat, the population was living in these unheated shell homes. <laughs> oh, they yeah, needed right. a hospital, they needed a shopping center, and there were still hundreds of apartments yet to be built. So I'm assuming nice. people are sardined into what is in Pripyat with like no supplies. With four walls and a roof, basically. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So on July 1972, mm. recognizing how fucked the situation was, <laughs> Burhanov traveled to Kiev to resign as supervisor of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant construction. Uh-huh, how'd that go? I'm gonna give you a sidebar <laughs> about the Soviet mentality. Okay. <laughs> before I tell you how that went. <laughs> Tee it so up. the goal of the Communist Party established following the Ru- Russian Revolution of 1917 was to represent the will of the workers. Yes. And that lasted for about eight seconds before it devolved into a single party state virtually immediately. Uh-huh. So depending on who you ask, it devolved into that state before it even started. But that's, we're not here to talk about. We're not here to. Detailed history. Cast judgment on. 
Well, yeah. if there's anything you want to cast judgment on, <laughs> close second to the Nazis is Soviet Russia. <laughs> right. <laughs> the promise at the beginning of the com of this whole endeavor was a communist utopia where there was no classes, limitless possibilities, and everyone just you know works for the good of the everyone, state. Yeah. So the deadline for the promise of that utopia kept getting pushed further and further back <laughs> as time went on, and that it eventually became just like a rallying cry to control the masses by the few people because people right. would always be like, "Hey, things are." Yeah, they're still really shitty. Yeah. Uh, how's that going? They're like, well, uh, it's it's just around the corner. You just got to keep your nose to the grind or whatever. Yeah. Keep pushing. And one day, one day soon, everyone's going to be living in this communist utopia. <laughs> yeah. Everyone so someday, will be rich. Basically. <laughs> so That's, soon you all have some and you'll not have everything. Yeah, exactly. Exa exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, go back to the factory where yes. you belong. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be there. No, I will not. No, no. I'll, I'll be watching you. Yes. I'll, Always watching. I'll be watching. <laughs> Always watching. So to facilitate the growth of the glorious communist state in Mother Russia, they instituted a rigid bureaucracy of ministers and party managers to oversee and report on everything. <sighs> Workshops, factories. You think it's annoying having one boss? Like you've got bosses on bosses yeah. on bosses on leaders on ministers on just a nation of tattletale basically, and the Communist Party was everywhere. So party membership came with a lot of perks, but it wasn't automatic. You had to go through this rigorous candidacy and review to actually become a party member. And as time progressed, the number of people that actually end up as party members got smaller and smaller. Hmm. What happens to non-party members doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't ask. Yeah. Don't ask. Don't tell. And the structure resulted in, like I said, a situation where someone like Burhanov answered to his boss and yeah. then the committee of the local communist party yeah. on up through the ranks. Think <laughs> office space. Like, yeah. Hey, did I, you hear about the TPS reports? <laughs> he, he gets that from like a dozen people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I have eight bosses now. Excuse me? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what you, that's what you have to keep in mind. Like almost yeah. basically a caricature. Yeah. So by the 1970s, the Soviet approach had shifted. So you didn't have Stalin-era mass executions anymore. Instead, you basically just had bullying and intimidation while half-heartedly rallying under the communist flag, yeah. where you'd basically have, you know, why should I do this? Well, because I'm your boss in mm. Utopia, whatever is coming, <laughs> you know. You don't want to be different. Exactly. And let's not forget the KGB was everywhere. That's also true. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> They're listening right now. We're all getting some other things. I guess. <laughs> So getting chewed up by your boss with a daily occurrence, it's annoying, but also dangerous. Right. Because it leads to a mentality of assumed authority. So the boss gets his way no matter how misguided the way was, which is especially dangerous when you're scientists or, I don't know, nuclear power plant operators. For example? For example. Okay. Sure. That might come up again. Yeah. And all of this is compounded by the borderline comical disconnect between fiction and reality, <laughs> or reality and how things really were. Yeah. We've never been more productive. Where are all the goods? <laughs> We've never had more food. Why, why, why are the shopping malls starving? empty? <laughs> yeah. We're way ahead of schedule. So why isn't everything done yet? Yeah. Basically, that's everywhere. Okay. So by July 1972, when Burhanov walks into the office to resign, his supervisor at the energy ministry tore up his resignation and told him to get back to work. <laughs> wow. So Burhanov is, he storms in there. I cannot work under these conditions. You're working under these conditions. Okay, I'm going to go work under those conditions. I had to take a shot. So the plan for the Chernobyl nuclear generation station. Generation station. Hey. 7 p.m. Thursdays. <laughs> the plan for the Chernobyl nuclear generating station was four reactors built by 1984, aptly named 1, 2, 3, and 4. Very Reactor creative. 5 was scheduled for completion in 1986, and they planned another six reactors. There was going to be a dozen, but they were... They were 
the construction was suspended. Was it? Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's like back when in, in the early 80s when George Lucas was like, I'm going to make 12 Star Wars this week. No, I'm going to make 15. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then <laughs> one of them catastrophically exploded and yeah. released a bunch of That was radio. Jedi. No. Oh. Well, that's 20 <laughs> years like, ah, he opened up a new, a new one. <laughs> anyway, so on August 1st, 1977, Chernobyl reactor number one went critical. And remember, that's a good thing. 77? 1977. Oh, and critical. Yeah. That's not, yeah. Yeah. August 1st, like 1977. Your test results are negative. Oh, no. <laughs> no that's good. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so to be fair, that's not too far off the 1975 deadline. They missed it by two years. But to be fair, like, it probably went critical in 1977. And by that point, the deadline had always been 1977. <laughs> of course it was. And anyone who thought it was 1977 <clears throat> is no longer a part a of the Communist Party. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, we can actually talk about the details of what these reactors were. So we mentioned that they're, they're RBMK-type reactors. Yes. But it'd be handy if someone were on hand to tell us what that means. I would like to know the specifics of those RBMKs. Lee, That's do you have them in front of you? Greek to do, me. Do you have right, Lee, let's hear it. No? Well, it stood can... for... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Norm, you want to take this one? I can uh, certainly can. Let's okay. hand it over to Norm. Let's hear about the RBMK reactors. Yeah, so these were graphite-moderated boiling water reactors. Okay. And graphite moderation and water boiling is great, right? Yep, yep. Okay. We know that's not true. No. There's actually still 12 of them in operation today. Oh. Uh, like in 2020. Uh, they're um, the oldest design by far right. that is still being used today. Really? Great. Yeah. Okay. Where, where are they? Where? Mostly in Russia. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, not my if, problem. <laughs> if you think back to the, the Three Mile Island episode and you remember that that was like a giant pressure cooker. Yep. Yeah. These, uh, instead of a giant pressure cooker for the fuel, they had individual fuel assemblies that were made of graphite. Okay. So basically big graphite blocks with holes drilled in them. Right. And okay. those were the channels. Okay. Uh, and they each had their own cooling and water flowing. So you can actually okay. access each channel on its own. Okay. Uh, without interrupting the other ones, and that allowed them to refuel mm -hmm. while the reactor was running. Oh, okay. okay. But it's actually believed that the USSR, as Peter kind of laid out, yep. they didn't actually have the technical ability to produce a giant steel pressure vessel. Right. So they had to use this boiling style design, which right. is much simpler. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if you're, if you're you rebuilding, can. everything that shows up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The assemblies were, the graphite pipes that yep. these would go into yep. uh, were seven meters long, so that's 23 feet. Okay. And there were a ton of them. So there yep. ended up being, I think, 190 tons of fuel in these reactors. That seems like a lot of time. Uh, that is about double the yeah. amount that would be in a Three Mile Island style. Right, okay. Yeah. okay. The Three Mile Island was closer to, and, and most conventional Western reactors have about 100 tons. So, right. So these, each one was twice as big as... Uh, doesn't seem like a good idea. So they're not going to run out. No. no. But, but also doesn't seem like a good idea to have that much in one place. But <laughs> well, whatever, yeah. who am I? I'm not a nuclear physicist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the design was uh, obviously extremely uncommon. Right. Uh, using graphite and all. Yeah. Uh, but that was, the graphite is actually based off of their plutonium production. So okay. the Americans and the British and the Russians, they need to make plutonium for weapons. Mm -hmm. And the plutonium design is actually basically exactly the RBMK. It's right. just channels. Because the, the channels allow you to really easily put in and out fuel. Okay. Which for a nuclear reactor isn't really something, or for a power reactor isn't yeah. something that actually matters. Right. But when you're making plutonium, you need to take out the fuel at a very specific time. Oh, I so see this is saying. where the channels are really useful. Right. And they just use that design yeah. for their power reactors. Okay. But why do they use graphite? Other why than it's used for the, why? it's used for plutonium, but okay. as we mentioned, graphite doesn't absorb neutrons. 
Right. Yeah, so yeah, it, right. it actually is a better moderator than water. Okay. So you don't need to enrich the uranium fuel as much yeah. as you do with normal reactors. Mm. Okay. So they can basically use cheaper fuel okay. to run their run their reactor oh, with a graphite. Okay. That's what well, there they, there's, there's actually go. a benefit. It wasn't just like, let's do this because I feel like it. <laughs> like it, it, yeah. it is, you can use much less enriched uranium for this. Almost, I think they say it's, you can potentially use natural uranium. Oh, okay. But you, or lightly enriched right. uranium. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's making more sense. As a complete side note, the yeah. Canadian can-do reactor yeah. can use natural uranium as hey. well. Uh, and it doesn't use graphite. Can do. Oh, that's a can do attitude yeah. right there. <laughs> Look yes, the we did use that joke twice. But yes, yeah. but it's, it's totally it worth every it. human who has ever heard that. <laughs> can do. <laughs> yeah. So we mentioned the positive void coefficient. That's yes. obviously the thing in your mind that I, you should be primed to think about when you hear it's graphite gonna, and boiling water. Up again. Yeah. Uh, so, like, obviously, does, these designs were certified to, to right. be run. And yeah. in fact, they're actually totally safe to run right. if you run them properly. <laughs> that's true of well, many of the. Uh, <laughs> Well, well, funny we'll machines. Back. We'll loop back around to that. <laughs> yeah. Would you also say if they're constructed properly? No, that, that's true okay. as well. So is a tea kettle. <laughs> you're right. uh, and like, Don't put your hand between the kettle and the element <laughs> yeah. and it works great. Yeah, your, your car is not dangerous if it's driven properly. Right. Too. If you don't light a newspaper and put it in the gas tank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they also omitted, uh, obviously they didn't have a ton of money here. They omitted the containment buildings that we talked about previously. Yep. That's the concrete <laughs> that can prevent explosions yep. and missiles and oh jeez, just engine putting big X's yeah. through blueprints. Yeah, oh, we can Basically, lose that. Yeah. So those buildings, yeah. they, like they, that doubles the cost having a containment building. Right. So that's they're like, oh well, let's just cut out the biggest cost. <laughs> Seems like a cost you want to double. <laughs> well, like, like from the, again from their, their this is the this their perspective, right? Well. Uh, we don't need this. It's redundant because yeah. we're not going to use our reactors wrong. That is very true. That's going to come up again. And a big, I love the confidence <laughs> throughout the construction. I, I didn't have this in my notes, but it's definitely in the, in the book where there's so many steps where there are, there's like schedule safety tests and they just like put a line through it. Yeah. We'd have to test this. If we were idiots, <laughs> but we're not idiots. Well, it's yeah. like the lack of uh, lifeboats in the Titanic. Yeah. Uh, Similar. Dude, unthinkable. Yeah, it's in you the name. <laughs> Why did it even have any life? Yeah. Right? yeah, so instead the reactor was just in a normal building. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's going to go, go well. Okay. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's all the details okay, on, cool. on the RPMK that you need to know. Thanks, Norm. <laughs> That's as sincere as I can tell. I don't know I'm going to edit these transitions. Whatever. I'm just going to jump back into it. I think they're great. So as you can imagine, 16 years spent building the plant changed Victor Brahanoff. <laughs> <laughs> he came in, to be fair, bright eye and clever and informed. He came out beaten down by the system of over-supervision and cognitive dissonance. So... <laughs> Spend, he built these plants, and by the end of it, he's like, fuck, I don't know. It's making power or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't even... He's not, not exactly even uh, yeah. doing his due diligence. Not, like not in so the early much. Days. I mean, 16 years doing anything will beat you down to some degree. So. Fair enough. But <laughs> I mean, on top of that... Yeah, can you, yeah exactly. Dealing 16 with. years of the Soviet mentality while you, you know people up your ass about finishing this reactor faster and yeah. cheaper and... Just yeah. thousand miles stare, like no, like, it's fine. It's yeah. it's it not even fine. just a communist thing. Like you see this yeah. in the Canadian federal government and oh, sure. like like yeah. big big companies where like the middle management just gets burned out yeah. about yep. For being sure. middle management. Yep, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, no, exactly. So it is a common you can you can relate to it. Yeah. Sure. But in this situation it had a few critical implications. 
or maybe I should say, and it had fewer vertical implications. <laughs> in, so Burhanoff, Burhanoff got comfortable bending rules and limitations. <laughs> because, Real comfortable. you know, he had to, and then yeah. it becomes the norm. Oh, he wanted to I'll, stay above ground. I'll just, ha- so. I'll just have one chip. You never have one chip, <laughs> no. right? You break one rule, you start breaking them all. Oh, yeah. We need fireproof cables. No fireproof cables? Well, okay, we'll use what you can, right? <laughs> we need non-flammable material on the roof of the reactors. No, non flammable. There'll material. never be a fire on the roof. Right. Okay, well, fine. Just, you know just what? Use the bitumen. It's highly flammable, but there's never going to be a fire. So don't right. worry about it. It's everywhere. So use it. He stayed on site to oversee the operations and the troubleshooting and the troubleshooting <laughs> and the troubleshooting. <laughs> and by the time the four reactors were up and running, he was a beaten down shell of his former self. Oh. And this attitude permeated the staff. You remember how I said when people first showed up, they were happy to live in cold Pripyat while they worked sure. on everything? All those specialists basically came and went. And they were replaced by some nuclear specialists, but uh-huh. mostly non-specialists. You'd have mechanics and electricians that were just from the energy industry. Right. And they show up with their own lack of understanding of nuclear power but also their own version of the Soviet mentality. They show up and they're like, it's a power plant. How hard could it be? I've worked at a power plant. Yeah. It makes power. You push the buttons and the power goes. No problem. Which again, not entirely their fault because on their way in, they were fed all these stories about how harmless radiation was. They're yeah. basically told that it's a nuclear power plant, there's radiation, but it's it's like coal, right? Don't yeah. worry about it. What's know. radiation? It's Don't worry about it. It's another type of energy. Yeah. It's, it's like the, the sun. Yeah. So the vacuum created by people that knew what they were talking about was filled with clueless and pig-headed people okay. that didn't really know what they were talking about. <laughs> I've got a few names here. Some of them will come and go. I'll talk about some of them later. You had Nikolai Fomin, chief engineer and deputy plant director. Sorry. He was deputy to the plant director. Mm. Oh, I see. <laughs> he was the Dwight. <laughs> Seriously, though. That's a title. Nice. That's probably where they got that joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you had Anatoly Dyatlov, who was the chief engineer for operations. I remember... Him on yeah. the show. And you also got <laughs> Alexander Akimov, who's the foreman of the fifth shift of reactor unit four. Okay. And both of those guys are going to be on site for some stuff. Yeah. Although one of them was in the toilet. No, we'll get to that later. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Just to recap, nuclear reactors of unprecedented scale. Yep. Rushed construction, mm. undersupplied and overreported, unqualified and unmotivated operation staff, and a city of 50,000 people, a quick 10-minute drive from the site of the reactor. <laughs> What could possibly go Sounds on? Sounds like a party to me. On December 13th, 1983, reactor unit number four went critical at Chernobyl. Again, a good thing. Good. <laughs> critical is a good one. Yeah. Critical is a good one. On April 25th, 1986, safety tests were running behind schedule. Probably unsurprising at this point because everything runs behind schedule in the Soviet it's, Union. It's uh, de rigor. Half-assed construction, half-assed operation. Yeah. Basically is what yeah, we're yeah. looking at. Senior mechanical engineer Alexander Yuvchenko expected a shift overseeing the unit four cooling following its shutdown and safety tests. Okay. Which was for the best because he hadn't slept in 24 hours at that point. (laughs) Uh, And instead, he was handed the task of overseeing the safety tests that were now running 12 hours late. Yeah. And Deputy Chief Engineer for Operations Anatoly Dyatlov oversaw the test in the control room number four. So are we at the event now? We're at the event. We're on April 25th, 1986. We flash forward. (laughs) (laughs) You've been sitting here patiently at this point for three hours. I just want something to blow up. (laughs) Nuke it! Like the stupid dumb guy in the stupid movie who just wants to see stuff blow up. (laughs) What's it all talking? They're planning the safety test for the purpose of Norm. Norm. Oh, geez. (laughs) <laughs> me wake up caught him sleeping yeah. we're not in Soviet Russia running a nuclear power plant it's my shift yeah <laughs> uh, yeah so like all reactors the core needs to be cool all the time that's right. water water's important oh, water's yeah. important so in, in emergencies or if the plant gets 
disconnected from the external power grid. Right. And it can't use its own electricity. It can't use electricity to run its own systems. Yeah. It has all these backup generators and things yeah. to keep water yeah, going yeah. through the core. Smart. Good. So the Chernobyl yeah. used backup diesel generators. So if it gets disconnected from its external power, yeah. it, uh, the core will shut down and then it'll use backup diesel to yeah. power the backup generators. Smart design. <laughs> these diesel generators. Some safety elements yeah. weren't considered like extraneous. Yeah. You yeah. know that the pen was hovering over Xing that one out. <laughs> being like, <laughs> backup. Let's keep that one. For yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the failure of the backup is actually what happened in Fukushima. It wasn't that the backups necessarily failed. It's okay. that there was a giant tsunami. Oh. And, uh, yeah, no. they so they would have worked if they were there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the Chernobyl backup generators, though, they took 60 seconds to essentially spin up and reach their power okay. such that they would be working. Right. Mm. And that delay yeah. would be too much for the reactor. It would get, it would overheat in right. that 60 seconds. Oh. Yeah. So that's a problem. So if you, if you get a blackout, you have 60 seconds before you get power and yeah. your nuclear reactor is so sensitive that that's not good. Things happen fast when you're talking about nuclear, mm -hmm. nuclear mm -hmm. reactors. Right? It seems to be. Yeah. 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 So the safety test that they were doing on that day, yeah. uh, they wanted to test to see if they can shut down their core yeah. and then use the residual momentum of their spinning turbines yeah. to generate enough electricity to fill in that gap between when they shut off the core yeah. and when the diesel generators turn back on. I remember when I learned that, that was a pretty clever design. Uh -huh. It's like regenerative braking on a car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it obviously didn't work. Well, it's... it's right. The, the previous lemonade, basically. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the previous tests on this were unsuccessful. That, that's the and test there. Cool. Thanks, Norm. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. God, <laughs> so smart. <laughs> we keep bringing them on. So the reason the safety test was pushed back, yep, is that it was supposed. So it was supposed to start two p.m. on Friday the twenty fifth. Okay. Running the test meant decreasing the power output from Chernobyl. And factories throughout Ukraine were running double time to meet their quotas and win their May Day holiday bonuses. <laughs> Soviet construction quotas. <laughs> Why were they behind in the first place? Because of the cognitive dissonance of we're, we're way ahead of schedule. Uh, really? Then why are you always behind schedule? <laughs> it's like the rally, rallying cry of the Communist Party was if it's not last minute, it's not homework. You know what I mean? Like they're always pushing behind schedule to get things done. Right, right. They were planning, they were ramping up to this test and then the central dispatcher of Kiev Electrical Grid intervened and told Chernobyl that Unit 4 couldn't go offline until after peak consumption, which was after 9 p.m. Okay. So that's why... By the time they started the test, it was 12 hours behind when it was supposed to start. Mm -hmm. So exhausted workers, working <laughs> overtime, some of them up for hours. 24 hours, just waiting for it to start. Want to know mm. another interesting fact about that? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah. They had already started preparations for the test right. before that the, they got the call that, hey, right. don't shut down. Yeah. Uh, and one of the parts of the preparation was they need to turn off the emergency core cooling system. Mm. So that's the system where... When if, if the core pressure drops too much, yep. it'll inject water automatically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They turned it off when they thought they were going to start the test in the middle of the day, right. and they never turned it back on. Mm. That wasn't necessarily the cause of the problem, but, but it, it, it shows you how easy it is for yeah. them to make a mistake. Oh, yeah. Because right, like, right. all right, we're ready to do this test. All right, turn on. First step one, turn it off. Hello. Yeah. And then you just forget you to just, like, turn it back on. Yeah. Right. right. Should I get... turn this back yeah, basically leaving oh. the oven on yeah, and yeah, walking yeah. away. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody told the engineers that had been on site all day waiting for the test to begin. And by midnight, they were basically threatening to cancel the whole thing and go home. Right. Which might have been the best thing to do, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, hindsight, yeah. On the other hand, someone had told the physicist from Chernobyl Nuclear Safety Department that the test was already complete. So he wasn't there. 
Okay. The guy who knows what he's talking about and from the safety department. <laughs> Someone told him that the test was done. Don't bother coming in. Yeah. It's all, it's all good. Don't need you. Okay. Not to worry, though, because stepping up to the control desk was Leonid Toptonov, ah. graduate of the Moscow Power Engineering Institute three years earlier in 1983 as a specialist in nuclear power plant engineering. On the job at Chernobyl for two months and had never run to the shutdown procedure. Oh, good. It's the man up front. He's the man of the hour. Speaking of the control desk, picture, like Norm was saying, the stereotypical overcomplicated depiction of a nuclear reactor control, like floor to ceiling buttons <laughs> and like knobs. What is that? button dude. Yeah. <laughs> you have no, I have no idea. Well, the person that built this has no exactly. idea. It's just a button where they had like loose cables and they're like, another button? I guess. <laughs> button. Look weird without it. So Toptonov worked under the hawkish gaze of Anatoly Dyatlov, who was a veteran <laughs> physicist. He had 14 years experience working on naval reactors uh -huh. and one of the three senior managers at Chernobyl with any nuclear expertise. Okay. One of the three people at Chernobyl who knew anything about <laughs> nuclear power plants. That seems low. He knew that the test happened tonight or it didn't happen for another year and he didn't want to wait another year. That's okay. the kind of person he was. Do or die. And you, you should probably rush things at a nuclear power plant. You should. That's probably the best thing. Just push it through. Problem is, compact naval reactors are nothing like the behemoth RBMKs <clears throat> at Chernobyl. To his credit, he busted his ass to learn everything he could about the RBMK-1000, but still, 14 years of training on one type of reactor doesn't just get erased because you crammed the night before. No. <laughs> it wasn't literally the night before, but, you know. Might as well be. Yeah. Dyatlov was also permeated by the communist mentality. Yep. He's in charge. He's right. And he was ridiculously stubborn about it. Uh -huh. Like he's, his word is gospel at sure. this point. Even though there's people in the room that are educated much better than he is on this exact type of reactor. Right. He's in charge. He's he knows the status right. and the story. Which is not what you want from somebody in charge. But. No, it's not. <clears throat> so at Chernobyl, the overworked and underqualified workers looked up to him as the authority figure. Yep. And just for good measure, Akimov was present as the shift foreman. And he technically, he was in charge, but any input Dyatlov had needed to go through Akimov. So okay. that's again, this Soviet <laughs> mentality. Great system. Dyatlov says something, but it doesn't happen until Akimov says it again. <laughs> so around midnight, they finally get the go ahead to commence the test because I guess Ukraine hit their quotas. Oh, okay. So quotas are an important thing in this uh, society. They sure are. I, I imagine. Yeah. So, so they didn't just work all through the night? Nah. I mean, they got to go home and drink lazy. their- Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got this next section broken up into a series of fuck-ups. Okay. <laughs> fuck-up number one. All right. So step one of the test was to lower the reactor's power output. Okay. Maybe fuck-up like 0.5 was turning off those safety things and not right. turning them off again. <laughs> the guidelines said that the test should be performed at no less than 700 megawatts. Remember okay. the maximum was 1,000. Yeah. Operators decided to hold at 720 megawatts just to be safe, which was smart of them. Yeah. Not so smart. Dyatlov, assuming that lower pow power output means a safer condition ordered that the power output be lowered to 200 megawatts. It's quite a bit lower. A little bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Basically just like shooting from the hip. Well, 200 is less than 700, so, so let's do 200. So good. So Akimov made it very well known to Dyatlov that this was counter to the regulations because power output that low isn't necessarily safer. If anything, it makes the reactor more unstable okay. and uncontrollable. Right. Again, this is a situation where we're talking about man harnessing the ancient cosmic power of atoms being split. <laughs> Maybe don't think the rules or guidelines. Uh-huh. Like, hey, they say don't go under 700. Don't go under 700. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nah. Right. <clears throat> Do it anyway. But basically, the so Soviet power structure meant that Dyatlov got his way. So 200 so, megawatts it is. End of the story. It's not all, though. Oh. Fuck up number two. Oh, yeah. Toptonov, dripping in inexperience, began to switch the control mode of the reactor. Normally, it's set to local automatic, allowing him to control parts of the core individually. Okay. 
he began switching the control to his global automatic. And that's basically an autopilot that would help lower the power output safely to the set point. Okay. Which was already the which unsafe 200 Abysmally watts. low. Yeah. But it would basically take care of that Gradually. lowering of the power output. Okay. A key step in the process was setting the holding level when you set it to global automatic. A key step in this process was setting the holding level. Topped Facts. and off, hit whatever the equivalent of enter was <laughs> on that giant fucking thing. Yes. And then he shit his pants. Because without <laughs> a set level for global automatic, the system's default is to the last set point that it was given, <laughs> which is zero. He was dripping in an experience <laughs> and he shit his pants? Just <laughs> grossest, grossest gross. person on earth. <laughs> so 200 was already an unstable level. Uh, he accidentally set it to zero. <laughs> Whoops, a daisy. Within two minutes, the power output was at 30 megawatts. Okay. Remember, safe point was 700. Yeah. By 1230, just half hour after midnight, the reactor output was almost zero. Oh, so okay. now you've just basically got freewheeling, freewheeling <laughs> core. Freewheeling neutrons. Norm, sort of, do you want to tell us about the xenon well? Do you know about yeah, so, that? Are you ready for oh, that yeah. sidebar? So to finish what you were talking about, yeah. they, they had basically accidentally turned off the reactor. Yeah. Yep. And <laughs> somebody uh, tripped on the power cord. And at this point, you're supposed to just stop. We're yeah. done here. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Dyatlov, yeah. as the scapegoat that he has painted in history as, mm -hmm. instructed them to increase the power again. Right. To do this, you pull out the control rods from your reactor. Right. Yeah. Right. So they started to pull out control rods, mm -hmm. and the power wasn't going up. Okay. And they pulled out even more control rods. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the power still wasn't going up. Yeah. And then they ended up pulling out the manual control rods that are like hard in there yeah. that you're not supposed to take out. They like literally physically pulled them out and then the power started to rise very, very slightly yeah. okay. to the point where they could have enough power to run their test. That's right. But this is like, remember the control rods are your accelerators? Yeah. 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 This is like redlining your engine yeah. uh -huh. and you're going like 10 kilometers an hour and yeah. you're like... This is fine. <laughs> We're moving. He, he has this first <laughs> gear. Puny yeah. amount of power, but yeah. almost all of the the reactor rods are pulled out. And You're we're right. like, all right, we're good to go. Right. Like that's okay. insane. Uh -huh. Yep. So why did this reactor stall? Does it have something to do with the xenon well? It does. Okay. <gasps> so uranium <laughs> uranium uranium like alien. Uranium 235 yep. splits into lots of things, yep. different things. It doesn't always split into the exact same elements. Yep. It splits into various elements. Right. Yeah. One of the things it fissions into is iodine-135, okay. which has a half-life of six and a half hours. Okay. And yeah. then iodine decays into xenon-135. Okay. Mm. Xenon-135 <laughs> aggressively absorbs neutrons. Oh. This is why they call it a reactor poison. Okay. And so as the reactor runs... Uh, the fissions create iodine-135. Yep. They'll eventually decay into the xenon-135, and then that builds up in your core. So the xenon effectively is acting as a control rod. So as you're running, you're adding basically a control rod into yep. your system. But when xenon-135 absorbs a neutron, it turns into xenon-136, yep. which is stable. You can imagine that the xenon is essentially being eaten up by neutrons. Okay. So if your reactor is running at high power, yeah. it's generating a lot of neutrons, yeah. and you basically eat up the xenon as fast as you create it. Right. And then you reach this balance where you're like, okay, you know, I, I know exactly the rate I'm running at. It's yeah. consistent. And then you have a, you don't need to futz around with yeah. the control <laughs> rods to, to maintain the power. Right. It's, it's stable. Yeah. But if you lower the power, yeah. as was in this case, yeah. uh, you generate much fewer neutrons. Right. So you're burning up less xenon. Yeah. But... Remember how I mentioned that xenon is a decay from iodine, and that's yeah. a six and a half hour 
Half-Life. Yeah. So the Xenon is still being produced at the rate you were running your reactor at six and a half hours ago. Right. So you're making a ton of Xenon yeah. and you're getting rid of a very small amount of it. Mm. So it's just building up more and more of this control rod in your core and as and you're burning it up very less. So it's basically absorbing all the neutrons instead of your uranium. Right. So you stall your engine mm. uh -huh. completely. And this is the Xenon pit. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But interesting note. Yes. Uh, Xenon-135 decays away in about nine and a half hours, half-life of a nine and a half hours. Okay. Uh, so this is why you keep your reactor shut down for zero. at least three days. Okay. That, that's that's f several half-lifes. <laughs> Therefore, okay. all the Xenon's gone, to be and then you can start your car again. Uh, and, and, right. And then there's no more extra absorption of neutrons there. Right. So okay. that actually covers my fuck up number three as well. <clears throat> and like Norm said, the safe thing to do is stop at this point. Yes. And that's totally what they did. They did not. They did not. <laughs> fuck up number four. Kept going. So <laughs> this process triggered two of the giant circulation pumps, which pumped more water into the core, which further risked upsetting the reactivity. Mm. As water rushed into the core, it absorbed more neutrons, dampened reactivity, and caused the automatic system to withdraw even more control rods. Okay. So they hadn't quite pulled all of them yet, but this basically, <laughs> this they, they had pulled out done. way too many, and this automatic <clears throat> system pulled out more. Okay. The water entering the core turned to steam instantly, uh -huh. which triggered the positive void effect, which we heard yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. So despite all this plate spinning, flaming chainsaw juggling insanity, <laughs> things finally seemed under control. Like uh -huh. Norm said, the engines like you're in first gear yeah you're Red at like 17,000 rpm <laughs> or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. okay things are under control good so diatlov's like run the test <laughs> the conditions are perfect <laughs> fuck up number five also known as the mother of all fuck ups okay so the plan for the test was to simulate loss of power like norm said to the nuclear generating station <laughs> and they did this by tripping a switch to cut the power and then wait for the diesel generator to take over all right which should take less than a minute yeah and to be fair it didn't it didn't take much more than a minute. Okay. So at 1.23 a.m., reactor number four stabilizes at 100 and, or stabilizes at 200 megawatts, which is bad. Wait, Water was 700. Well, should have been 700. Yeah. Go they planned on 720, but Dyatlov knew better. Yeah. Water was being pumped into the core at near boiling, mm -hmm. which is worse. Yeah. And most <laughs> of the control rods had been removed from the core, right. which is even worse. Okay. They hit the button to cut power to the reactor. And the turbines began spinning down, water flowing to the core slowed and heated up, and the amount of water turning into steam increased, which means that fewer neutrons were being absorbed, which means reactivity grew, and more water turned to steam, and you got this feedback, <laughs> okay. causing more, basically the positive void effect. Okay. We'll and then the time came to end the test. So still, like, <laughs> things are going, but not great, not terrible. At, at, this, right. at this point, the... All the rods are basically out of the core. The yep. only thing absorbing neutrons is that Xenon-135. Okay. Okay. Right? That's a good... Which is a limited resource. Right. We'll see how that goes. Uh -huh. Okay. So the time came to end the test. Akimov ordered that the reactor be shut down, hitting that AZ-5 button. Toptonov hit the button that lowered the control rods into the core to stop the reaction. Hmm. So the control rods lowered, and for a split second, reactivity dropped. So... Things are looking all right. Okay. As they continued to lower, they, displ they displaced what water was left, cooling the core, which increased the positive void effect even more. And two seconds later, the chain reaction was out of control. Oh. So the temperature in the core climbed to 3,000 degrees Celsius, <laughs> okay. 5,400 Fahrenheit. You're welcome, America. <laughs> <laughs> the fuel caps in the core, weighing about 80 kilograms, were thrown around like leaves on a pond. So things are... Things are not going great. Things are yeah, reacting. Water flashed to steam and destroyed the coolant lines. Okay. Like 
instantly. <laughs> Any water that's there just becomes <laughs> steam. Yeah. Picture your eggs boiling, but that happening immediately and all the water disappearing and turning into steam. <laughs> that would be strange. The entire complex shook and moaned as the heat and pressure built in the core. Uh-huh. Remember in Three Mile Island when like the control room's shook by some kind of rumbling and everybody shits their pants? Yeah, yeah. This is happening like constantly. Yeah, okay. Basically you hear a rumble. There's a neutron pulse with a thermal power of about 12 billion watts that blasts from the core and lifts a 2,000 ton biological shield that was sitting on top of the core. Okay. So the shit's hitting the fan. I'm saying this in a relatively calm voice, but at this point, there's been like a burst of neutrons so powerful that it lifted a 2,000 ton sheet of concrete that's sitting on top of the core. Yes. And at this point, the core temperature rises to about 4,600 degrees Celsius. So that was 1.23 a.m. Okay. When One, you say lifted that thing, did it just sort of go up and down or... Kind of like lit, blew it off into the picture. The picture the, picture the, like a... The top of uh, uh, a pot of boiling oh, water. Boiling. Like a, it's like, like, yeah, but it's not a top of a pot. It's no, it's a 2,000 like ton a, biological yeah. shield. Yeah. <laughs> 124 a.m., two minutes after the test began, uh-huh. a colossal explosion rocked the entire building. Mm-hmm. So the hydrogen and oxygen that accumulated in the core ignited. And it exploded with the equivalent of 60 tons of TNT wow. and flipped the upper biological shield, which was even bigger than that first one. <laughs> okay. More troublingly, it destroyed the concrete on the roof to reveal the night sky. So now the core has exploded and it's exposed, and it's exposed to the exposed air. Exposed to just the elements. Open up. <laughs> okay. Just oh, there wait, it is. Wait, wait, wait. Why didn't they just like protect it with the containment building? They didn't have one of those. Oh, they forgot. Yeah, they forgot that. That was one of the things they X'd off. Oh, that was their building. Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. need that. So the first casualty was likely a worker that was in the space directly above the reactor. Probably. Directly above the reactor. Okay. So either he was likely vaporized by the explosion oh, instantly hopefully. or crushed by the collapsing building. Yeah. And the reactor obviously was obliterated. <clears throat> Seven tons of powdered uranium fuel was ejected into the atmosphere, which took some of the most dangerous radioisotopes known to man with it. It's just going into the air. 30 tons of uranium and radioactive graphite was launched out of the core and just sprinkled around everywhere. Sweet. Rooftops, ground, just... Those, those, those graphite rods that Norm was talking about, yeah. blown to pieces, and yeah. there you go, countryside. <laughs> Here Deal it is with this. Little infinitesimal amounts. Many of them burning. Like, you got chunks of them that are on fire, yeah. and we'll see how that goes. Okay. And then 1,300 tons of graphite rubble was left in the core that was basically flashing into a blaze. Okay. Two off-duty workers were fishing on the river near the plant, <laughs> and they witnessed the explosion. And as they smoke cleared, they saw the massive 150 meter tall ventilation stack, that big striped stack, yeah, illuminated from below by a strange glow. Mm, disconcerting. <laughs> All of that, what blows my mind the most about that is that the test starts at 122, yeah. and at 124, it's over. Glow. It's quick. Two minutes. That's quick. Yeah, Think it, about things that happen in two minutes. And the scram was at one. <laughs> the scram was at one twenty three forty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, Twenty yeah. seconds. Axe man. So immediately after the meltdown and explosion, nobody really knew what happened, which is understandable Naturally. because the unfathomable had <laughs> it's happened. Unprecedented. Just like, what do you mean the reactor exploded? Get out of here! Uh, no, it didn't. Yeah. Think about your biggest fuck up and how long it took you to realize what happened. Right? <laughs> you're just like you're staring at it and you're like, no. It's no, 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 no. The no, biggest no. is like something <laughs> fell down the sewer or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something I needed. Well, like, I your wedding ring falls down the sewer. <laughs> I, yeah. And you've got that like 10 seconds of, uh, this is not <laughs> happening. <laughs> okay, so Dyatlov sent plant operators to attempt to lower the graphite rods manually into the core. Okay. 
he still thinks that the core is intact. He just thinks like, well, <laughs> he thinks uh, there's a core to lower things stuff, shook stuff into. And he's like, well, that was weird. Anyway, we really got to stop this reaction, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they these two workers that he sends, they run, they encounter someone running in the opposite direction who tells them that they say, oh, we got to lower the rods, and this guy's like into what into there's the no earth? reactor there's yeah. nothing <laughs> they wanted to see it anyway because they're like well Dyatlov's going to chew us out right so they went and they spent less than a minute looking at the core uh-huh. they just like look at it to see it burning and that kills them just like looking at the core for less than a minute when they just they run up they go to this they go to look at the core yes. just to like tell Dyatlov the core that, is like, gone we tried to check they look at it uh-huh. they back out and then they're, they're they that's a dead? dead sentence they don't die immediately oh, but they're screwed they're screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. I'll talk, I'll talk about some new dosages <laughs> in a bit. Yeah. <clears throat> but still, what... That's all it took. Imagine seeing the core, though. It must be, like, terrifyingly beautiful to look at it. I'm sure it was a pretty light show. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it's 4,000 degrees, that's almost... That's, what, uh, 80% the temperature of the surface of the sun. Right. So, so that's, you wouldn't be able to really look at it without burning your eyes out. Yeah. Oh, sure. Probably more... The more of a killer light show it is, the quicker it'll yeah. kill you. <laughs> it makes me think of Kappa at the end of Sunshine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vaporized anyway. Makes me think of uh, Annihilation. Right. Which I watched last night. Ooh. Nice. It's pretty cool. It's a good one. So the immediate... Issue was the burning radioactive graphite sprinkled everywhere. Yeah. Remember the bitumen rooftops? So reactor number three had one of those rooftops as well. And it was now littered in burning graphite. Okay. Igniting the gra- the bitumen on the roof. Not so bitching anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Not to downplay the general chaos within the plant, though. Because no. lots, there was basically giant turbines, lots of flammable oil, lots of hydrogen used to cool the generator coils and fire everywhere. Okay. So there's lots of fires to, per, to put out, figuratively and literally. Yeah. <laughs> Just general chaos. Beyond everything, radiation was everywhere at this point. Okay. Exposed core. We talked about all the dangers of radiation and how like Mary Curie yeah. eventually died because she sure. exposed herself to small bits of radiation throughout her <clears> career. <throat> Now you've got a massive amount that's melted down, exposed, that just is exposed to everyone. Everyone's exposed Yeah, to we're talking lethal doses. And it's a terrifying killer because you're dead and you don't even know it. Right. Two workers, like for example, two workers took a break from scrambling to put out the fires. They go outside for a smoke break and they're surrounded by all this radioactive graphite. Yeah. Dead. Dead. Not instantly, but that's a death sentence. That's what it took. And I'm going to talk about how not instantly right now. Okay. I've got a sidebar on radiation sickness. Okay. So I'm just going to, I've got to split up into dose effects of ionizing radiation. Okay. Expressed in Gray's and Rentgen. Because right. at this time, Soviet Russia uses Rentgen to measure everything. Yeah, yeah. Even though, as we heard from Norm last time, Rentgen is a garbage measure that only garbage people use. <laughs> <coughs> We've got strong feelings about different units. We're a little on bit uh, elitist. <laughs> <laughs> they so, actually try to douse the, uh, the fires out with water. Yeah. Yeah. So the graphite is carbon, which is basically charcoal, yeah. which mm. burns yeah. really hot. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the water most likely flash evaporated before it actually yeah. could have Touched put it. the water out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But basically, the firefighters are, they, they show, we'll talk about it. Yeah. At one to two grays, which is about 200 Rentgen, the immediate, ca- the immediate results is nausea and vomiting within two to six hours and a slight headache. Mm. Within three to four weeks, you'll have fatigue and weakness, and the mortality is about 5% chance within eight weeks. Okay. So 200 Rentgen is not that bad. Okay. Two to six grays or 700 Rentgen. Immediate symptoms. Yeah. Nausea and vomiting within two hours. Diarrhea within eight hours. Moderate headache within 24 hours. Moderate fever within three hours. And cognitive impairment lasting less than a day. So it'd kind of be like loopy for less than a day. Yeah. Right off the bat. A really bad flu. Then there's a latent period of about one to three weeks. Okay. At which point you'll get 
purple skin coloration, bleeding from sores, infections, and hair loss. Oh. And the mortality now is anywhere between 5 to 95% within six weeks. <laughs> that becomes 5 to 50% with treatment. I don't like those odds. That's the terrifying part. You get hit with it. You're a little bit uneasy. You're fine. Yeah. Then you get then hit you with the real stuff. Then you start disintegrating. Six to eight grays or 900 Rankin. <laughs> Nausea and vomiting within an hour. Heavy diarrhea within three hours. Moderate headache within four hours. Severe fever within an hour. And cognitive impairment that lasts over a day. So now you're loopy for, for a long period of time. Right. Then you get about a week off. Okay. Then you get high fever, diarrhea, vomiting, dizziness and disorientation, severe drop in blood pressure, and electrolyte imbalance. Mortality here is 95 to 100% within a month. Wow. That's, and That's 900 quite rent, the 1,000 rent grant. Okay, rent. okay. And it's 50, it, mortality goes down to 50% to 100 within with treatment. That was what, seven grays you said? <clears throat> yeah. About, yeah, six to eight. Six to eight, okay. Then between eight and 30 grays or 3,500 <laughs> Yeah. Nausea and vomiting within 10 minutes. Yeah. Heavy diarrhea within an hour. Severe headache within two hours. Severe fever within an hour and rapid incapacitation. So you're not loopy, you're like... On the floor. You're knocked on your ass. There's no latent period. Uh -huh. and you go straight into more nausea, vomiting, severe diarrhea, high fever, electrolyte imbalance, and eventually shock. Okay. Mortality is 100% within two days to two weeks. Wow. Goes down to 99% with treatment. Okay. So 1% get off. <laughs> and then just for just for poops and giggles, over 30 grays, which is over 3,500 rent nausea and vomiting within minutes, and then within the first hour, heavy diarrhea, debilitating headache, crippling fever, seizures, loss of control of muscles, an extreme lethargy, and you're dead within two days. 100%. Okay. That's thir over 3,500 rent <clears throat> I imagine you're going to tell us now. Uh, not right now. No, okay. But focus on the upper two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what i was committing so, to memory the progression is the scariest part so most commonly you get exposed and the immediate symptoms go away you get mm -hmm. like a rash you feel fine oh I got through that and then the waiting begins right. and it it's coming and depending on the level it's coming to a various degree yeah there's difficulty measuring the exact amounts of radiation released at chernobyl but estimates of the worst areas are about six rentgen a second which is about 20,000 rentgen an hour. Wow. At the worst areas. On average, picture thousands of rentgen an hour. Okay. So there, we'll talk about it, but there's some areas of Chernobyl where really four minutes is a death sentence wow. for these like worth, worst kinds of, of dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at every, any given time, people at the plant were exposed to thousands of rentgens. In some areas, people were hit with lethal doses within seconds. Yeah. They don't see it and you barely see it, but you're dead now. This will come up again, but a large part of the difficulty measuring the radiation was the equipment. The most commonly ava available decimeters topped out at 3.6 rentgen an hour. Okay. And it's kind of like the temperature sensors at Three Mile Island that topped at 700 degrees. Yeah. Can it be three higher than 3.6? Well, it could. <laughs> Never will be. Well, well, so it doesn't matter. It. We'll just yeah, top it, it out doesn't here. Really matter. So the burning roof of reactor number three needed to be dealt with. That was the immediate issue. Some automated tools were put together like robots and remote control bulldozers. But radiation basically made them useless, okay. and that'll come up, come up again. Arriving on the scene, one of the firefighters recognized the burning masses of radioactive graphite littered everywhere, and his name was Anatoly Zakharov. He says, lads, it's the guts of the reactor. If we survive until the morning, we'll live forever. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he's calling it like he sees to it. To be fair, they made it till the morning. 
Uh, they didn't live forever, though. And then, no. Uh, the firefighters that rushed to Chernobyl had balls of steel, obviously. They just show up. Yep. To be fair, they also weren't told. They were like the workers. Like, radioactivity is not that big of an issue. Don't you know? Don't worry about it. You'll yeah, be fine. yeah. It'll be fine. Another day at the office. So balls of steel. Maybe balls of lead would have been better. But that's <laughs> yeah. a tasteless joke that I'll edit out. <laughs> <laughs> they ran up the fire escapes to the roof of unit, unit number three. They were covered in patches of burning graphite which were igniting the bitumen roof, and we can thank Bruhanov for cutting the corner for it all that. Mm-hmm. From the instant the firefighters set foot on the roof in Unit 3, they were surrounded by radioactive debris giving off thousands of Rentgen an hour. So that's the 95 to 100% mortality oh, okay. in a month level. Wow, we... The firefighters dragged hoses up the fire escape to the roof of Unit 3, so they're just like, they're, they're all in at this point. They're oh, like yeah. the firefighters, if you remember Episode 2, the Bomber Blitz, you had those firefighters that just ran up the Empire State Building yeah. like nothing. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's these guys. But the water, like Norm said, only seemed to make the fire burn more because it just <laughs> turned to steam instantly. Right. So they would, to be fair, like, fire. they're shooting a hose at uranium pellets burning at 4,000 degrees Celsius. <laughs> You're not really going to. It's like, yeah. no, nothing, nothing <laughs> exactly. yet. But they were clearly not trained to know what to do. No. They were trained to put out house fires. Yeah, not exactly. Uh, and like, they never thought, like, since... The reactor can't blow up. They no. don't have special training for this, no, of course not. which they obviously do now. This thing that's happening can't happen. It's not happening. So, yeah. <laughs> so deal with it like you would anything else. So as relief crews met the first group of firefighters coming down, those first three that ran up, yeah. two were running, running up, and they saw them stagger and be incoherent. Probably at this point, they have high fever and they're nauseous and they're starting to vomit. Jesus. They've just been on this roof and they don't know what's going on. Right. The relief crew was two men. One of them, whose name was Petrovsky, went blind within a few minutes of being on the roof. Uh-huh. His eyesight came back in 30 seconds, but as soon as it did, he said to his partner, fuck this, let's get the fuck out of here. That's a quote. That's a quote? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Which sounds a lot like anything. It sounds like something you would say. Exactly. For for much less. That's why I, yeah. <laughs> I've said that for like... For like a too long line at the yeah. grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> Many spots on the roof reach close to 10,000 rentgen an hour. So a lethal dose in about four minutes. Okay. Say. And that's not going to drop quickly at all. So they eventually managed to put the fires out for the most part, but the debris is still smoldering. So eventually, I don't know, it's probably not so much them with, it's not so much the water as these hunks of graphite just burn themselves out. That's what I was going to say. Like it wasn't their efforts. It was just time. And just like, if you picture them on the roof, the bitumen's melting underfoot. So like you're slogging on this tar roof that's grabbing at your boots with every step that you take. Uh And also on top of this, forget radiation suits. This is just in their fire (laughs) gear. Yeah, sure. So no protection. No dark brown up. Yeah. yeah, so workers were rushed from the site, and the worst ones ended up at Hospital Number 6 in Moscow, Okay, which is a catchy name, which is the communist way. Hospital Number 6, because it was probably the sixth hospital <laughs> in Moscow. Yeah, very. Was, yeah. <laughs> That's how it works, right? A, Giant gray building named Number yeah. 6. There's no... Uh, and like I said before, a lot of them felt fine. Like within a couple... Like they show up, and then they're joking, playing cards, laughing at each other, and that was just the latent period. Right. And most of them, unfortunately, didn't not, realize what they, was coming. They die screaming. Oh, unfortunately. yeah. They melt. And then their b- bodies were buried in lead-lined coffins and entombed in concrete. Jeez. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is another thing. They'll splash out for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's another thing that a lot of criticism is leveled at the show Chernobyl. Right. And there's another book called Voices from Chernobyl, which is like accounts of survivals, survivors. Okay. Because technically, a lot of these people that show up in the hospital say, you know, don't touch these people that have been affected because they think the radiation is contagious. Once you get the clothes off and they're washed, you can't like... You can't get radiation get sickness from someone. Okay. But it's the misinformation and it's the Soviet mentality again. Like yeah. the depiction in the show is people being told don't touch them because they're radioactive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're saying that, you know, fetuses are absorbing this radiation and they're being aborted because of it. And right. That's 
people being told that by Soviet doctors who sure. don't know better don't because know they don't have access about. to Western medicine. They're making <laughs> it up. Yeah. So anyway, at this point, I'm going to have to yada yada some stuff. <laughs> this is in my notes. I'm not cutting stuff out. But okay. there is so much detail. Read Midnight in Chernobyl as a starting point. It's an amazing book that goes into a ton of detail about all of this. It's great. There you go. There's so many stories of false readings and superiors failing to listen to informed subordinates. Burhanov himself was informed by the safety officer that radiation readings were off the chart, but he just didn't believe him. Okay. He's like, you don't, you know what you're talking about. It's 3.6 rent in an hour, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, it's this like cognitive dissonance. The machine's telling me 3.6 and somewhere in your mind, you know, that's bullshit. <laughs> but he's, in, he's also thinking like, if it's more than this, we're all fucked. Right. So it can't What's be more than What's the most this. the machine can be? <laughs> yeah. Well, 3.6. Exactly. But why do you bring that up? At one point, the safety officer went above Burhanov's head and called Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, and was like, he's just trying to sound the alarm. Yeah. And even the person who picks up the phone is like, no, nah, reactors don't explode. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of one exploding. Don't forget, we still had to deal with the smoldering remnants of the core. So that they decided to away. start bombing the core with sand, lead, and boron to absorb the neutrons still being released. Right. Because mm -hmm. I'm assuming boron absorbs neutrons. Yep, that's what the uh, control rods are made of. Sweet, there, there you, you go. go. Good thing to, good thing to do bombarding. doing. So they did hundreds of helicopter missions flying over the exposed reactor core to drop sandbags, basically. Okay. Very few actually made it, but this is their plan. Dropping sandbags from a moving helicopter onto a core <laughs> while trying not to get a radio. Video game that's very, very hard. It's, yeah, super <laughs> frustrating. Yeah. And this really only accomplished exposing even more people to deadly levels of radiation <laughs> because helicopters flying through this core. Anyone who goes near and just don't do it. Don't do it. It's, anyway. Don't fly above it. They, so the military personnel were given their upper limit of permitted radiation exposure, but obviously they, like, no, I'm, I'm in the military. I can handle this. Right. They can't handle it. <laughs> so containment. So it's it's no surprise that nobody really understood what was happening in the core. Uh -huh. it's, it melted down, but this doesn't happen. It's never happened, and nobody really prepared for it. Right. They began to suspect that the melting fuel and other material, including the sand and boron that they're being thrown on it, might form a mass of radioactive lava, <laughs> and they started worrying about... The China syndrome, which we talked about last time, <laughs> right. which as a reminder is the molten lava radioactive core burning through the bottom of the reactor and then down oh, yeah. into the earth. <laughs> the China syndrome. China syndrome implies burning through the earth and showing up in China, but that's not how <laughs> that's, anything works. Yeah. <laughs> so while the actual premise of the China syndrome is ridiculous, there were real concerns. If the radioactive core melted through the bottom of the reactor, it could contaminate the local water table and the Dnieper, which is the local river, yeah. it supplies a lot of other areas and basically irradiate a much larger larger area right. and make it uninhabitable. The land. Also, maybe more concerningly, there was still a lot of water left in the reservoirs under the core. And flashing a lot of water into steam in a contained vessel isn't going to be, isn't going to be great. Norm, yeah. is that, is that explosion territory? That, that is true. Yes. Like, like the whole basement was flooded because they just poured water yeah. in it, and then it all flooded right. the basement and then that's and right they, underneath where the core is going to blow up. Yeah, they had these reservoirs that were emptied because those are the reservoirs that pumped coolant into the core and it all boiled away. Yeah. But they re got refilled as they tried to put out the core, essentially. And right. water leaked back into them. And basically, this explosion would shower radioactive material even further over the countryside and create a massive and devastating explosion area on a much larger scale than the first <laughs> core meltdown. So the U.S. had been simulating meltdowns for decades. And let's not forget who we're dealing with here, though. Like, the Soviet Union was so confident in their design that they never bothered simulating meltdowns. So they don't know what's going on in the core and what could possibly happen. Right. And they weren't about to ask the West for help. Even internally, they were consulting Soviet scientists, but not giving them details. Mm -hmm. They would give them these hypotheticals, but not tell them like the scale of the plant or that it even is a plant. They're just talking, ask, talking to theoretical physicists, being like, well, it could happen. 
<laughs> this doesn't mean that they didn't ask for help from anyone. <laughs> so some Soviet scientists approached Germany's nuclear industry group, uh, but they were vague in the same way that the Communist Party is vague about anything about specifics. Yeah. So <laughs> they talked to the Germans and they're like, so hypothetically, how would you handle, I don't know, something extremely hot that may have melted through the floor of a nuclear power plant? <laughs> hypothetically. Just, I'm not saying anything happened. Right. But if you were to deal with such a catastrophic meltdown, and that's not, not a meltdown, just something hot. <laughs> how 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 would you how would you do that in detail? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just say. Just say what it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Eventually they brought in Hans Blix and Morris Rosen. So they were the director general of the International Atomic Agency and the man in charge of the safety division. Okay. So they were the first Western officials to visit the site. And they actually flew them like they're flying near Chernobyl to see everything. Yeah. And the guy flying is like, "Hey, do you want to see? Do you want to fly closer to see the core?" No. And they're like, "No, we got it. We're good. We, <laughs> we see everything we need to see." Yeah, we see it. And by the way, you're an idiot. Yeah, like if you if they if you point to the big smoldering crater of a reactor <laughs> with like a pillar of yeah. light coming out of it. No, I got it. I, I see. Seen I everything see. I want to see ever in life at this yeah. point. So the immediate issue were the steam suppression pools beneath what was left of reactor number right. one, right? Because of the China syndrome. It's not yeah. going to burn to China, but it's going to burn to these and it's, flash them into steam. Yeah. So they basically needed to drain them. They needed to drain the pools that were underneath the core, uh -huh. the core that's melting down, the area that is the most radioactive place on Earth. Uh -huh. They need to go there and drain the pools. Is Superman available? No, uh -huh. but three plant workers were. Oh, good. And they sent them into the basement underneath hell on Earth to open the valves manually. Did they volunteer or were they voluntold? Well, <laughs> depends on who you ask. There's a lot of vagueness. They were... They're volunteers, but whether that's yeah. Soviet volunteering for the good of the party or actually volunteering. Were they volunteers in the sense that there was no monetary compensation? There was monetary yeah. compensation, okay, well. but I don't know if it was clear. Like they told, I think they Your got families. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they promised them monetary compensation. So they were, their names were, cause I thought it's worth mentioning, sure. Boris Baranov, Alexei Anenenko and Valery Bespalov. So the decimeters they took with them pinned to max immediately. Right. And so there's no way to know how much they were exposed to for sure. Likely thousands. Take it off and chuck it in the water. Easily dozens of grays. <laughs> they got it done though. They so got the it valves done. actually opened relatively easily. But oh, amazing. Yeah. The next issue was stopping the core from contaminating the groundwater. The initial plan called for pumping liquid nitrogen through the remaining pipework to smother the core. Uh -huh. But there's no point because it's exposed to oxygen and it'll keep burning. If you remember Tragedy Tuesday, episode 17 and a half about the Centralia mine fire. They oh, yeah. tried to douse it, but there's still oxygen, so it just didn't work. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> the next plan was to use specialized drill to excavate horizontally to the shaft under the core and freeze the ground underneath the core. Hmm. But they encountered too many obstacles, so they ab abandoned that plan. Eventually, they started using manual labor to dig a shaft for the same purpose, to get under the core and fill it with nitrogen to freeze it and stop the core from going any further. But it was ultimately, even that was pointless because the core began to burn itself out and inverted the China syndrome. It's ah. fantastic. So the lesson here is do nothing and things will sort themselves out. <laughs> That's usually my... Unfortunately, yeah. all those miners ended up dying. No, they'll be fine. For, for no reason. They'll be fine. The naked miners. They were fine. Yeah. They were fine. They were fine. Digging naked underneath <laughs> the most radioactive place on Earth. <laughs> I'm sure they lived long, happy lives. Remember the city of 50,000 people three kilometers away? Yes. Uh, so they were pretty much kept in the dark completely. Yeah. They were told there's a fire in the plant, no reason to panic. Eventually, evacuation. the evacuation did start, but it wasn't until 11 a.m. on April 27th. Remember the meltdown and explosion was on at 1.22, 1.23 a.m. on April 25th. Right. So they spent a full day living under the smoke cloud. Sucking it in. Sucking it in. Great. Breathing all that great radiation we talked about in episode yeah. one. That's the alpha radiation, right? In this case, almost all of the um, the fission products yeah. is beta radiation. Okay. 
So breathe in all that. Fantastic. Breathe in beta. So the cloud of ionizing radiation poured from the colon was born directly into the city and beyond, like we heard about at the very beginning of the episode. Yeah. It ended up in Sweden, where Cliff Robinson was measuring radioactive shoes. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> great. Pripyat itself is a significant multifaceted trauma, and I'm going to save a discussion of that for our next Tragedy Tuesday with an extra special guest. <laughs> But we'll talk about that. So okay. stay tuned. We're not done. Chernobyl we're not done yet. with Pripyat. No, we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna focus on Chernobyl for just a little bit more. Yeah. So the USSR didn't admit that there was an accident in Chernobyl until April twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six. Okay. Along with a televised statement broadcast on Soviet TV. Uh huh. I'm, I'm gonna just read it for you. There has been an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One of the nuclear reactors was damaged. <laughs> the effects of the accident are being remedied. Assistance has been provided for any affected people. An investigative commission has been set up in transmission. <laughs> That's what the Soviet people I were love told. the, it's like the half truths. Yeah. It's Minimal a, it's information. A form of lying. It is. <laughs> just like what kind of, doesn't matter. Don't, I didn't say. Just an incident. It's an incident. <laughs> yeah, what kind, I didn't like say. Like a good one? Someone had a I birthday party? I didn't say what kind. A even, birthday even, party. Even admitting it on a global scale after Sweden called them out on it, they start small and eventually admit the full extent. All right. Hey, hey Lee, did you eat the cake? No. Did you eat the cake, Lee? I, I didn't buy the cake. Did you eat the whole cake, Lee? Yes. Yeah, I know you eat the cake. <laughs> I, I saw him eating me the about cake. It. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's like the whole, everyone's like, I saw it. Yeah, we, know it's, we know what's happening. You saw someone. The US is like, we have something. satellites. You know what? Anyway, aftermath. We're winding down. <laughs> it's the worst in many ways is yet to come, but we're winding down. Right. So the situation eventually got better. Radiation levels dropped to nobody's complete understanding. They just like, <laughs> Which is, again, just let why it. you shouldn't be fucking around with the rules in the first place. <laughs> Don't do anything. Yeah. The burning graphite was eventually put out and additional <clears throat> explosions averted. Great. Then the liquidation operations began. <clears throat> so they had to destroy all remaining animals in the area to do, to avoid spread of radioactive contamination. Oh, that's a great episode of the television show Chernobyl. I just mm -hmm. watched it. Oh, I'm still on suicide watch right? because of it. <laughs> the puppies? <sighs> Come on, man. <laughs> oh, a person. Yay. Uh, don't worry, they'll run. It's not hard. It's not a hard job. They'll run to you because they're so happy to see you. And then you shoot them in the face. I just, there's one line in the, that I love. I repeat to myself, like okay. something about, so are you happy? And the guy's like, I'm happy. I'm happy every day. <laughs> and he's the guy that's shooting yeah, dogs right? every day. <laughs> they also have to essentially raise the countryside, not raise it up, but like raise it, raise overturn it. the countryside to yes. at least get the radioactive Salt surface underneath the soil. Well, salting the earth. Chernobyl took care of that. Yeah. <laughs> and they evacuated everyone within a 30 kilometer radius. Right. Remember, Sweden got irradiated. Yeah. 30 kilometers should be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more the token gesture. I know. Some cesium over sure, there. But I'm just saying, think, yeah. think bigger. Ew. Maybe. Still, <laughs> there remained the question of the cooler, but still insanely dangerous radioactive mass that used to be core of reactor number four. The Soviets solicited a lot of solutions. One of them include just pouring concrete over it. <laughs> just buried in concrete. Just bury it. Still, it's still pretty hot though, and that's not going to let the concrete set. So, nah. they eventually came across what they called the sarcophagus. They would pour a concrete floor underneath the reactor and then build a gargantuan hangar like structure to completely encase the remains of reactor number four. <sighs> the sarcophagus would only really be effective if all of the debris was collected inside what was left of the core. Because remember, there's debris on all the surrounding roofs. Yeah. And we got to encase all of that. Mm. The Soviets went through about 50 remote control robots in an attempt to shovel radioactive debris from the rooftops around number four. So their <laughs> first thought was, 
radio controlled robots. Yeah, sure. They went through a 50, I think almost like 60 robots and eventually <laughs> they all failed because the radiation is just so extreme. How many I'm assuming robots did they have? It like burns out the batteries and the communication systems and everything. I mean, it just fries everything. Yeah, fries everything. So they had to go back to throwing people at the problem. <laughs> In toll, all told, they sent 5,000 men to manually shovel radioactive material off the rooftops into the core. Every person could only work for a maximum of 90 seconds. Uh-huh. That's not per shift. The maximum they could work yeah. on the roof was 90 seconds. Okay. In, their, in their life. In their yeah. life. So that's like a ride at Disneyland with <laughs> people yeah. lined up. That's your job. You show up, here's your shovel, shovel, ring the bell, come back, you're done. Goodbye Get forever. Yeah. And probably go that's not, die. Well, it's not like 90 seconds and you're dead, but it's anything much more than that, you start getting into cancer territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people violated the rule though. Some people did like five, six shifts, right? Which commendable, again. commendable, but <laughs> on average, the workers were exposed to about 25 rem. We didn't really talk about rem, but it's a measure of radiation exposure. 25 rem means DNA damage and lower white blood cell counts. A lot of them probably got cancer. Right. Okay. Even just those 90 seconds. 5,000? How long did this take? <sighs> well, 90 seconds of shoveling these chunks of graphite yes. into the core. Yes. Heavy chunks of graphite. Yes. Took a long time. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like years. I'm dancing around the fact that I don't have a number in front of me. Oh, it took okay. me a long time. It took him a long time. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. I know. Look, there are so much. I've just come to expect gonna, a certain level of research. Fair enough. <laughs> you brought I got this a on lot, yourself. Look, I've given you a lot of numbers. So <laughs> could have said that. I would have believed you. <laughs> read a read a book, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> Gotta read that no, book. Fair enough. Midnight. Chernobyl. I highly recommend the book. It's very good. <laughs> I'm sure it's in there. Also, Sorry, I won't ask don't any questions. Think, no, no, no. You bring them on. <laughs> Don't for a second think that the construction of the sarcophagus would be any better than construction of the entire plant. It was rushed. No. They wanted it to do this well. It's going to take a year. You have four months. Okay. You want uh, done right? You want right. done right now? Right now. <laughs> right. The answer is right now. So, yeah. far. so again, rushed timelines and pathetically disorganized construction workers, even though cool. the radiation near reactor four had dropped dramatically, they still had to build sections of the concrete off site and then bring it on site hmm. quickly in shifts again. Sounds so, out of sight. Uh, they Made did manage joke. to encase the remains of the reactor in a giant concrete structure that they called the sarcophagus. <clears throat> it was only meant to last 30 years and it only lasted 30 years. In 2013, a huge section of the roof collapsed near the sarcophagus <laughs> and released a bunch of radiation. Wow. Yeah. So still burning. It was eventually replaced with the quote, new safe confinement, which mm. I think was an internationally funded effort to actually mm. encase the reactor. Okay. There's a giant metal arch that's about 105 meters tall, 340 feet, spans 260 meters or 840 feet. And it's built on rails next to the reactor and moved into place in November 2016. And the plan is now to dismantle the reactor using remote machinery under the cover of the new safe confinement arch. Now we have robots that can deal with that. Well, uh, now we do. Kind yeah. of stuff. Don't worry though. Reactors 1 to 3 are back up and running in no time. So reactor 4 exploded. Say what? Reactor 1 to 3 were running. Oh, good. So they're still good. They're still going. At the time, at least. Oh, they were just kept I think they're away. still generating energy. No, they've, still... they've all been shut down, but they were shut down fairly recently. The last one was shut down fairly recently. I can't remember the exact date, but like yeah. within the 2000s. <laughs> so like part of the scramble around this is four exploded and they're like, well, we can't shut down three. And they still need power. Right. So people still need power. Yeah. I can't believe that the four exploded and didn't affect the other three. That just like, that speaks they're, to like the... They're relatively isolated system. Yeah, exactly. They're like, all, they're each not, reactor is its own building and control room. Right. And remember that most of the Pretty radiation is beta radiation, so right. it actually can't penetrate sure. through right. like concrete, yeah. right? So like the other parts of the building, once it's sealed up, it's actually right. Yeah, the only issue is that to, it's exposed to the air. Got going that right. Yeah. yeah. So there was a criminal trial. Just coming back, a lot of people got flack for this. The two people that I wanted to mention, Dyatlov, <laughs> who oversaw the whole test, was yeah. sentenced to 10 years. Right. Serve three. <laughs> and Burhanov, who designed the plan in the first place, also got 10 years. 
and three others got similar sentences. So basically slap on the wrist. Yeah. Hey, you created the most dangerous man-made situation on earth. Here's 10 years. Go to jail for a minor get out for portion of your life. A regime wow. who historically <laughs> shot people for stuff. Right. As much as I don't condone that, this is something you get shot for. Yeah. <laughs> Although this <laughs> is kind of, day? this is Im- implicating him yeah. as more of a scapegoat than anything else. Cause they're like, we're going to punish you, but we know it wasn't oh, just your sure. fault. And I've got, I've got a rundown later about causes, but just quickly casualties. That's why you're it, here. This is going to be deeply unsatisfying. <laughs> so it's impossible to know exact numbers. Of course. As a direct result of the accident, <clears throat> 237 people were affected with acute radiation sickness, varying severe degrees. Yeah. These are mostly plant workers, firefighters, and army personnel. 31 people died within the first three months. Okay. Of almost 70,000 emergency workers from Belarus, the Belarusian government claimed about 150 died by the mid-90s. Wow. And that's, to be fair, the same Soviet government that didn't admit fault until they were caught, didn't evacuate Pripyat immediately, and half-assed the reactor in the first place. So (laughs) Facts are dubious? Yeah. Yeah. Getting exact numbers is also complicated. It's complicated by a few things. One of the main things, you could apply in Ukraine for the official party status of sufferer from radiation, and that entitled you to certain state benefits. Okay. By the year 2000, there were about 3.5 million people claiming sufferer status in Ukraine. Mm. So it's not to say that those are all illegitimate, but that distorts the numbers. Well, yeah. I don't know if 3.5 million people (laughs) have suffered from radiation sickness. Right. Thyroid cancer rates did... Increase after 1986, but also so did the accuracy in screening. So it's kind of like Three Mile Island. Is there more cancer or are we better at finding it? Yeah, or are more people going to get screened? Exactly. And and thyroid cancer is the main thing to worry about for people that aren't directly irradiated because it's iodine is uh, 130, whichever one I said it was. That's the one that's really easy to pick up in your yeah. in your thyroid but thyroid cancer also has a 99% survival rate right so okay the greatest casualty was international public perception of nuclear power <laughs> <laughs> revealing our own biases here yes <laughs> Some of it was informed concern about the specific reactor type used at Chernobyl. So some people protested RBMK type reactors. Right. Those were the vast minority. Most of the harmful debate was around nuclear plants in general, right. which stems from lack of knowledge. To be fair, not every not every minority of people are nuclear physicists. But the problem is that it might also be too late. If we start a campaign now rallying against RBMK or graphite <laughs> rod reactors, yeah. people are like, why don't we just ban all nuclear? Right. Well, that's not the point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? But, you know, if you're, if you're afraid of nuclear, you're afraid of nuclear. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, it, because of things in large part like Chernobyl. Yeah, it doesn't help. You can only hope that by talking about Chernobyl on podcasts like this, that lowers that level of fear. Because hopefully, we've talked about one major catastrophe mm-hmm. among how many nuclear power plants that have been running before and since. Right. And there's much safer ways of building them now. So really, don't focus on Chernobyl. Basically, the message here is don't, half-assed construction of your reactors, ignore safety measures, <laughs> employ underqualified and overworked personnel, and lie to yourself about the severity of the accidents that do happen. <laughs> there you go. That's the f- maybe final thought. It's rare to get the exact moment where a catastrophe this huge originates. Big picture, there's too many underlying causes to count. If you want to be a real dink about it, <laughs> hey, why did, why did Chernobyl happen? Well, in 1917, the Soviet party, like, <laughs> there's just, where do I Maybe start? Maybe you better sit down. Right? Like, it was the sum of many parts, clearly. Exactly. Like it was, you know, a perfect it, storm. We do ha- kind of have the benefit of being able to say, if, if you really want to put a point on it, dropping the control rods into an unstable core, yeah. hitting that AZ-5 button. If you want a moment, if you want the point of no return, But you can go it. back and say the design of the control rods yeah. was the problem, because had they not been designed with the graphite spacers, sure. they would have... It would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying like in this context, if you want a moment, it's topped off 
hitting, hitting the button. that button. Yeah. That's, Although he that's had no the, choice, though. He had no choice. Exactly. Right. There's so yeah. many steps, and that's a lot of the stuff that I glazed over. There's times where people do question authority. Sure. But then Dyatlov, in this case, is like, well, you do it, or I fire you, and I get someone else. Well, yeah. I mean, there's... Yeah. You got to be a good soldier. Well, he had no choice but to hit the scram button, because the core was going to blow up if he didn't, and it blew up in a different way. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh -huh. okay. Because yeah, he well, did. It had already gone yeah, So it actually... Yeah. Would the results have been basically the same? It's yeah. hard to, like, it right. would have been just, like, they were screwed at the point where they took right. all, everything out and and they burnt up all the xenon and then it blew up. They okay. were screwed already. <laughs> Blanks and all that you, like, encourage you to fill in yourselves. Because it's, it is fascinating. Start by reading Midnight in Chernobyl. It's amazing. If you, nothing else, the HBO show will give you broad strokes. It's great for the imagery and giving you the impression of what it's like living in the Soviet Union yeah. at the time. It paints a lovely communist nightmare and picture. Keep in mind some of the differences, like we talked about today, particularly what I'm, I'm thinking about when they were trying to do that heat exchanger underneath the plant. Yeah. In the show, they just immediately go to throwing people at the problem. Yeah. They had tried in reality a lot of different things, like the you know drilling under the core and pouring... Yeah. Same with uh, shoveling the stuff off the rooftop. Right. In in the show, they try like two robots and they're like, ah, fuck it, people. Yeah. They had tried like 50 or 60 robots right, to actually get right. it. So. But it'll, you'll still get that the broad thing strokes. Things get adapted. But, exactly. You know, you'll get the broad strokes horror of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That was Chernobyl <laughs> and that was a fucking disaster. Uh, <laughs> be hard one to top. It. <laughs> this is, yeah. This was a long episode. You're probably reaching hour number two at this point. Yeah. We kind of had this. With us. Maybe you can. This is a call for feedback. We have this a bunch of policies on the show. One of them is we're not going to cover things that stem from malice, like terrorist attacks and shootings right. and stuff. The other one is we don't really want to go over two parts. I feel like it'll always be part one background, part two the disaster. Yeah. And however long those end up being, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. But let us know what you think. If you think that it's better to break this up into three parts, we could we could we could think about it. Yeah. But yeah. podcast, you can just pause it and come back. So yeah. yeah. There's yeah. Let us know. I'm just gonna keep saying, yeah. 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 Normandy asked to add. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about music page. recommendations? Is it? Norm was a guest, so how about Norm first? Oh, I've got Muzak for you. Awesome. Right. Let's hear it. Uh, so my band is Refused. Mm, they right. are a Swedish punk-ish hardcore band. Swedish, you say? Yes, yeah, Sweden. <laughs> Sweden. So there's there's a link. Home of Force Mark. Yes, uh, and my song for them is New Noise. It's from their 1998 album, The Shape of Punk to Come. Right. Nice. The song is kind of like this lefty, revolutionary, sick of hearing the same arguments. Yeah, yeah, right. they, they want some new arguments, some yep. new noise. Nice. Uh, so the, the idea is that we need a new argument, right. new noise in the nuclear game, and that yep. is pro-nuclear argument for uh, yeah. climate change. I think, we, I, think we're I think we can agree with Hopefully that. Hopefully we're converting some listeners. That's not <laughs> our goal. That's not our goal. Think what you want. Ah. Also, new noise is kind of like what Cliff encountered when he found that radioactive shoe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lee, you want to go next? Yeah, so my choice is uh, by a band called Voivod. Oh, nice. Uh, French-Canadian metal band. Yep. Very near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the title track from their 1987 album, Killing Technology. <laughs> and I just remember reading interviews with them around that time where they're talking about that album and that song specifically directly influenced by Chernobyl. Right. Also the uh, Challenger oh, shuttle yeah. exploding. Same year. It just sort of, it's, it's. I mean, they're sort of a kind of a sci-fi kind of like flights of fancy kind of band yeah. lyrically, but it just sort of caught the the feeling at the time that you know this technology is not all great and forward thinking there's right. obviously bad it's aspects. killing technology killing not te killing technology I'm not right. trying yeah. to kill technology <laughs> it's technology that kills and I right. think metal bands in general really thrived on that sort of 
nuclear, like, yeah. <laughs> the threat of nuclear, yeah. uh, you know, annihilation and stuff. It was good fodder for lyrics and yeah, in metal at the time. So nice. I went with that. Round it out, you, Peter. My band, Full of Hell. Yes, one of my favorite <laughs> bands. Freaking awesome. Oh, they're so good. In part, I picked it because just picturing that core is just hell on earth. So full of hell. <laughs> They're a black metal band from, uh, I guess, Ocean City, Maryland and right. Pen uh, Central Pennsylvania. Uh, and I wonder actually if they know about the Centralia Mine Fire, which is in Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm sure. Treasure Tuesday. Three Mile Island <laughs> is in Pennsylvania as well. Oh, Pennsylvania's Whoa. got a lot of shit going on. <laughs> so the album is the split that they did with Merzbow right. in 2014. Full of, it's just called Full of Hell and Merzbow. Yeah. Song is High Fells. Okay. And the reason I chose it is, well, first of all, in general, to go along with the clusterfuck that you know Full of Hell is just a clusterfuck. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, the guitar distortion, actually, the first half of the song sounds like a decimeter. Like the, the, that Geiger counter. <laughs> right, thing. right. And the underlying, once you get to the second half, you have like this underlying sense of dark awe, which mm. I kind of feel like is what you would feel staring into the core. It's probably an amazing <laughs> sight with yeah. that shaft of ionized air around it, like the light glowing off of it. Terrifying, but probably not worth the damage to you. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably just heard a bunch right now. Yes, sir. So thanks for tuning in, as always. If you want to, like I said, best thing to do is subscribe if you aren't already. Leave, leave a review. Absolute best thing to do. Get a friend to listen. Tell all your friends about this as a disaster. Tell them we do good work. Tell them we're radioactive if you want. Whatever <laughs> whatever sells. Whatever. If you want to follow us on social medias, at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, you can check out our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. Also, we have a Patreon now. Ooh. If you guys want to be a patron, help us make more great content. Ha. We got some goals on there. If we get a certain number of patrons, we've got some ideas for bonus episodes and additional content. So hey. check that out. It's patreon.com slash this disaster pod. There you go. So check that out. Oh, and next time, <sighs> next time, grab a snow shovel because we're going to be getting chilly in the 19th century East Coast. Oh, no. Snow. So thanks for tuning in and thanks for being here again, Norm. Bye. 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 <laughs>